but you want some fixed and some flexibility. And this is back to creativity. Creativity, there's a great quote that says, uh, you know, take time to waste time. You know, and a lot of times creativity is birthed out of boredom is the word they normally say, but it's when you're idle, it's when you're drifting, it's when there's a silence and a calmness and you're not doing anything that something comes out, something gets planted into your brain. And that's a little subtle thing that happens. And then you want to write that down because that could be a thing to explore. And that's also part of the structure, discipline and flow and flexibility in a day. So you're right. It can be applied to everyday life. This is the, this is the value of this time. We're being pressure tested. What is your limit? What are your values? What are your tools? What are your limitations? This is, this is a moment to, to, to find the answers to this. Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst turned exponential performance coach and endurance athlete. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Stephen Rasmussen. Stephen has 30 years experience in martial arts and first trained karate under the widely respected Sensei Ron Fagan in Nova Scotia, Canada. My episode with Sensei Fagan is episode number two, if you haven't, let, you haven't yet listened. In his early mid-20s, Stephen had the feeling that there's much more to life than settling down in Canada at that point in his life. And so, in what was originally going to be the typical backpacking trip throughout Europe, has now turned into 20 plus years of living in various countries in the continent. Throughout his travels, Stephen has continued to grow as a martial artist, now focusing mainly on the art of sea lot, which we'll get into, as well as a photographer and now also a commercial actor. Stephen has always been an artist at heart, and throughout this interview, we delve into how his love of art and curiosity with performance has allowed for the organic outgrowth of his passions. More specifically, we touch on why he decided to stay in Europe, the art of Sealot, his passion of photography and newfound interest in acting, and also what it's like to be living in Spain during the pandemic. And so, without further ado, my interview with Stephen Rasmussen. So thanks again for coming on the show, Stephen. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, of course. So later, I definitely want to get into uh, kind of what it's like to be living in Spain during this time and get your perspective on the situation. But for the sake of the kind of the flow of the interview, um, I think we'll, we'll get to that towards the end. But so maybe to start to just kind of go over kind of your background. Um, were you born and raised in Canada? Yes, that's correct. <clears throat> Got it. And where I, I grew Sorry, go ahead. I grew up in uh, Dartmouth, a twin city of Halifax in Nova Scotia on the East Coast. Got it. Okay. So that's, I'm assuming, where you got to know Sensei Fagan? Yes, that's correct. Yep. He was my first martial arts teacher way back in 1990. Oh, wow. I didn't realize he was your, your first teacher. Yes, lucky me. Uh, could you imagine all the luck and all the land and I get to be with uh, someone like that? Uh, yeah. Super inspiration for me and my life and my martial arts journey. So 
And how, so how old were, were you when you um, started training under him? I was 17 when I started training martial arts. Okay. Got yeah. it. And, um, and knowing you're a very much into, you know, art and photography and acting, what, when you were growing up, did you have a lot of, like, were you kind of a very artistic child? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, when I think back to my childhood, there's two things that kind of stand out. And I think there's there's some truth that when one looks back at their, their childhood, one can find a lot of, um, let's say, guidance for what one should be doing. And one of the aspects that I really enjoyed was was just drawing and painting and being creative. And uh, I remember so many times creating something, my mother would be so happy and proud and put it on the wall. And I always say that, you know, that's that's why I became a photographer, a designer, and always been creative because that's been something instilled in me that this uh, that this is something valuable. And, uh, and I think also it was connected with a, a sense of love and, and being uh, appreciated and... Uh, you know, so that that was one of the aspects, and the other aspect was in the martial arts. Um, like a lot of boys growing up, we played swords and guns, and sort of role played and worked out a lot of things. I guess that we're working out as kids, and uh, you know, as an adult, uh, teaching and training in martial arts is very much like that as well. You know, I get to to explore a lot of things, and we're we're playing roles and. And, uh, you know, I think that's very much what we're doing. So in a, in a way, I'm doing a lot of things I did as a child, um, except for I get paid for it, which is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it sounds like your parents were very much supportive of your kind of artistic interests uh, when you were growing up. S super supportive. I'm very, very fortunate in that way. You know, uh, my mom is always my number one fan, as she says. And, uh, you know, that continues to this day and my stepfather, Jeff, as well. And I'm very lucky because I think that although I made some choices initially trying to follow the route of university and kind of doing the mainstream or the obvious choice, I was really lucky in the end, I ended up doing things that really I, I enjoy a lot. And I've had that support and encouragement from my family and and ultimately, they've just wanted me to be happy and to follow my own journey. So I feel really grateful. And um, and that makes a huge difference when someone is making choices based on their happiness versus their, say, just purely financial choices or what is likely to give them a certain lifestyle. I was able to make choices that made me happy. Yeah, that's, so. that's great. And how would, how would you describe, I guess, um, kind of growing up in... Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, and the area that you did, like kind of that environment as a, as a kid growing up in that environment? Well, I was born in Bridgewater on the East Coast as well. And this is about one hour's drive from Halifax, Dartmouth. Got it. And when my parents got divorced close to 10 years old at the time, um, I guess it was a transition going into the big city, <laughs> which is funny <laughs> now thinking that Halifax or Dartmouth is the big city having lived in other places which are relatively enormous as compared to, uh, you know, this, the East Coast, the size of the cities. But, um, you know, so for me it was, um, I was very, I've always been very young at heart. So I think that I found it quite challenging because I was shy when I was younger and little things like being bullied or, being in situations where you had to test your mettle, so to speak, 
Uh, I remember these 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 points like it was yesterday. So I think that a lot of the stuff in our childhood stays with us. This could be an indicator of why one goes into martial arts, which is you know we can speak about a little bit later as well, and the motivations and the reasons why. So um, you know I had a great uh, childhood growing up, a lot of support from my mom and my stepfather, and um, and. The martial arts for me, when it, I was always interested in martial arts, you know, and it was something that I suppose a lot of kids were curious about. Um, we had the influence of Bruce Lee, of course, as the, as the classic Chuck Norris and many others. So in, in a way, um, I started training at the gym at 14 and 15. I trained okay. for about two years or more in the gym with this idea that I needed to get stronger before I started martial arts. So that was some perception I have for some reason. I don't know. So the gym was my first thing. I was inter interested in bodybuilding, but the idea was to get ready for doing martial arts when I was ready. And then I started looking 15, 16, and then I met Sensei Fagan. I just thought, okay, this is the place. This is the this is the guy to learn from. Yeah, that's that's interesting that you started to to go to the I guess go to the gym before you started martial arts. So were you like was it a lot of weightlifting that you were doing? Yes, I was doing weightlifting. I was sort of into this this craze of bodybuilding, you know, wearing the muscle gym shirt. And <laughs> I suppose in, in high school, it was like this anyways, because I was going to the gym and I'd play badminton. I don't know the connection. I'm not sure. But I guess I'd like the speed and the solidarity of um, badminton. But the gym was a different, let's say, subculture in the high school. And yeah, the martial arts just sort of was a natural fit for me, you know, um, why one goes into martial arts, I'm not really sure. I mean, everyone is very individual and they're the reason why they start and the reason why they, they, uh, they continue and the reason why they ultimately maybe teach. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, um, for me, it was many, many factors, uh, you know, related to that. But I think there's a, there was a feeling that being really young at heart always in my life and there were certain <laughs> my friends would say like an innocence to me that's helped me to be remain curious and open to many ideas related to martial arts and 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 I think this is a component of uh, of being a good martial artist or a good uh, good teacher is to keep that openness and that curiosity mm -hmm. you know through your process and uh, yeah so these are hmm. Interesting. So if you had to maybe boil it down to maybe two or three of kind of the major factors that got you into uh, going into martial arts, would you say maybe it was a combination of kind of your openness and curiosity um, coupled with kind of your artistic interests and then maybe self-defense because you were um, maybe bullied when you were younger? Yeah, it was definitely curiosity. Mm -hmm. There was definitely this image in my mind, I remember even speaking with a friend who, and I was trying to convince him to go with me to class to start uh, training. And uh, I remember saying to him one day, this is very funny and I never share this, but saying that wouldn't it be cool. Like if one day you got arrested, they wouldn't put the handcuffs on your wrist. They'd put them on your ankles because you, you know, you'd be, you'd be able to kick and that would be dangerous. So, you know, so I don't know why I had that in my head, you know, I was a 15 year old boy at the time. So, you know, who knows what's in a 15 year old's head, you know, but um, I had this image and I, and I suppose in a way that I, 
probably craved a more uh, alpha or yeah, and and uh, say stereotypical masculine influence mm-hmm. in my life. And I had, I, you know, I my parents got divorced, and I had my stepfather, and and he's um, been so great and made so much effort in in those years. But you know, there's a part of me that 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 was still looking for that, and I think that that's probably why I chose to train with sensei and, and also with the group because the sense of structure and hierarchy, um, discipline was so clear. Um, I like that. I guess I needed that somehow subconsciously, probably I knew that I needed that. And, and of course, uh, years later, my mom would say that, uh, you know, since it came into my life at the right time, because, you know, when we're younger, we feel indestructible and we, we kind of know it all. And, and uh, and I think that um, you know that that was another reason why I definitely went into it. It was uh, you know, and I think I see that in a lot of people that I've met over the years in martial arts. I wouldn't say that we're particularly damaged. You could argue everyone has a, a, elements of their history that remain with them, if you want to call that damaged or some things that they're working through. But I definitely see that that martial arts in general is a way to work through things in one's being and one's previous experiences and i think that this is an honest way to do it as well because there's some there's some process that happens with 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 um with training with people and i think now of my closest friends and the closest people in my life generally speaking i met them through martial arts you know and that's quite remarkable to think and why is that and i always think that okay martial arts has been like a glue for me keeping my life together relationships come and go i've moved in different countries jobs have changed situations have changed but the martial arts has always been a way to show up in a place, meet a bunch of people really quickly, and gain some level of connection and understanding and 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 openness and even socially having a social group very quickly. And this has been a real real gift, you know, to have this uh, this as one of the aspects of my life. So I feel really grateful for that. Wow, that's a uh, that's awesome and. What what did you say? What would you say you enjoyed about doing um, karate at first under Sensei Fagan? Hmm, many many things. I mean, let's be let's be honest. When you walk into a club and you see a row of people and you see at the front, there's the chief. <laughs> you know, it's not that you want to be that guy, or that girl, or that woman, or that man. You, but you see you see structure and you think, hmm. Yellow belt, they had something. The orange belt, ooh, they had something more. Green belt, ooh, that belt suddenly gets a lot darker. It looks heavier. There's more contrast with the white gi. So of course you're you're pulled into this idea of progression and and this desire to 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 go through the ranks. And this is something very attractive that um, and is very visual, very clear. And 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 this this for me was was certainly attractive as well. And uh, the, the clubs I looked at were were more relaxed, or let's say less organized, didn't appeal to me. So I definitely remember very clearly 30 years ago now, going to clubs and just, just feeling like there, there was something missing that I saw very clearly in Sensei's club and the structure with all the other instructors and that I just I just felt in my you know, a naive way that this was for me, this was the place for me. 
Mm-hmm. And so how many years um, did you end up training with Sensei Fagan? The better part of 10 years, and that was pre-moving to Europe. And, you know, even within that, there's so many, there's so many phases, you know, this pursuit of the black belt. And I remember so exciting, you know, this, this process and all the challenges, especially the psychological, the physical came easy because I was young, but the, the psychological pressure and, and the ability that, uh, to really withstand, you know, the, the, the critique on many levels, you know, as, uh, as you could imagine, uh, sensei was, was ferocious. He always has been. And, uh, you know, his intensity, his passion and his, and his standard that he set was so high. And, and he was, uh, you know, he was, he wouldn't take much from people like me at the time, very young. And I, I remember many stories and, uh, Man, I remember going to summer camp. We called Gashuku, and which meant intensive training. And uh, I remember, supposedly, I talked out to one of the brown belts. The brown belts at the time were the kind of the police, let's say, and and they would kind of keep the order. And supposedly, I may have—I don't remember—but <laughs> I may <laughs> have uh, spoken back. And anyways, the punishment was enormous amount of. I think it was like it was a uh, squat punches or something, I think. So we're squatting in a full squat, like a duck walk. And then you come up and you're going to your, your front stance and you'd punch and we're doing it up and down the field. So, you know, that was a, that was also something I, I guess I needed. So I don't know if that answers your question exactly. I get a little bit off track because there's so many memories that sort of flood back <laughs> when you, when you ask these questions. No, it's great. I love, I love the stories. And so, in having in having studied, I guess so many different martial arts over the years. What qualities do you think separates a good martial arts instructor from, say, a great one? Yeah, I've been thinking about this lately. You know, it's um, I think it's very personal. Anything you ask about martial arts, I immediately <laughs> would say that this is obviously very unique because I think that I look at martial arts. Is exactly that martial art it's an art it's a vehicle for one's self-improvement self-enhancement um, your own evolution your own personal expression so i would say that i would define it more as a martial artist versus a martial arts teacher mm-hmm. in the sense that i think that's where it all comes from is that you are one is the artist or the one who is 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 practicing some art form that is inevitably both changing you and also becoming a part of you at the same time. And that changes over time, depending on who you change the person. And obviously, obviously the martial arts changes you as well, depending on the influences of the people and what you're training and the different styles and et cetera, et cetera. So I think that creativity is one that I think that I've really appreciated more and more that being able to inject my creativity into training. And, and a good example is now, you know, the last few years, uh, living in Spain, not having the access to, I'm going to say the right training partners, but the people who A, have the time, B, the desire, and C, also have some level that they can challenge me to teach and improve as a teacher, as a martial artist. It's not so easy. So what I've ended up doing in the last few years, which is obviously benefiting really well now, um, is solo training and looking at how I can take simple training methods 
based on the structure I have of CLAT, influenced by all my previous years, because I've done CLAT for about 10 years, but 20 years, uh, 10 years in the middle was a lot of martial arts and 10 years foundation in karate. So, so I have 30 years, but very distinct three phases, let's say. So subsequently, um, now I'm working on a pilot program with a group of longtime friends and martial artists, including, including Sensei. And it's interesting because I love solo training and I think it's the independence it gives you because, you know, the idea of having to rely on someone to coordinate schedules to meet, to be able to progress as a martial artist, um, you want that to be, you want to be independent you know, at least my feeling. And, and so for my own practice, is really important to me. But that said, I always feel like it's good to have something physical, an instrument to work with. And that could be really basic. I mean, I, I love this uh, Ido Portel uh, quote. He says, uh, the, the more expensive the tool, the cheaper the mover. And the cheaper the tool, the more expensive the mover. Meaning that the most basic instrument, for example, a stick, let's say a stick, you, you, you know, you're mopping the floor and you, you take the mop, and you separate it from the stick. That stick is a simple, simple tool. But if you explore it based on, as I call the three P's, the patterns, postures, and principles of Silat, then there's an enormous wealth of exploration that in a way gives you a sense of ownership of your art you realize that the, the even if you have a skeleton or the structure or all the the these uh the framework of a, a system let's say the art is in your own exploration of it this is my philosophy artist before art you know training before talking i have all these kind of things that i i think about that it's more important the artist it's great lineage and where did you come from? And what was the the history, the origins, the lineage? Fantastic for for exploring. But for me, it's an art form. I want to feel good. These days, wake up, go outside, grab a tool, something basic, and just explore, see where it goes. And then I now I grab it on video, I structure it, and then I'm in the process of putting it together as, like I said, a pilot program to share with people. So that's kind of where I'm at with my my approach right now yeah and do you think that um doing a lot of solo training that you're able to kind of form and then maybe inject your own sort of artistic unique artistic expression into i guess your martial art if that makes sense yeah absolutely i mean everyone is different like i said but for me and this ties in a lot of the things that I do at this current time is that I realize that a lot of things I've done in my life has been about performance. Even as a photographer, I'm hiding behind the camera, but I'm still performing. The excitement is that I'm in the middle of this, the studio or the shoot or the environment, the collaborative process, and it has to pass through the lens. And I'm the one who pushes the button and I'm the one who is the catalyst in, in, in drawing out and trying to nurture or encourage the person to give me something that maybe they normally don't give, but I can do it. I can bring it out because I have some ability or connection or or just to be authentic with them and, and ask the right question or create the right energy. So, you know, for me in a lot of ways, it's um, this idea of personal expression in art. 
I think it happens in a lot of things. Um, of course, see that when you when I teach it, I'm performing it. But now I'm noticing that when I put the camera on, even though I'm thinking that okay, I'm going to document this or I'm going to share this with with uh, this uh, this group of martial artists initially before I put it publicly, I start to realize that yeah, I like the performance. It's good to have an audience. It brings out something else in me that that gives me an edge. And I debated, is it showing off? And I thought, it's not because it's about connection. It's about connecting, even if it's a virtual audience, like now thinking about what people will think as they're listening to our chat. It's mm -hmm. like, well, it's nice to think that people may get something out of this conversation. It does create another edge that when you have a nice conversation and you don't share it, you don't necessarily have the same feeling that it could be transmitted in the same way, aside from the two people that are sharing, of course. So performance and expression um, in solo practice is definitely in there because of visualization. Um, it means that if you have a certain skill level at a certain amount of time in martial arts, you can visualize, you know what it's like to be punched in and outside of martial arts or to feel pain. You know how the body works. You can visualize and see, or if you, don't have a physical, um, like I said, in the physical body, you can use, you know, a post, for example, or, uh, you know, something um, like I'm training now where there's like a, this overhanging, the sun cover protection, you know, they have in Spain. And it's like, uh, you know, you can do a lot of things just with a pole that's vertically coming out of the ground. It's, it's, it's incredible. You just have to go into your state of mind that sees that as a limb, a body part, and you use that. But the great thing about CLAT for me, and, and one of the things I love about it, there's two, just, there's many things, but one of them is it's so beautiful in its flow and it's, let's say it's femininity because it's, it's a martial art that has definitely a feminine and a masculine um, aspects. And the best mm -hmm. CLAT is when you see those two merge together. And it's, 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 uh, it's absolutely, um, in, incredible in that way and then the other side is that when you see the application it's pretty mean it's very painful and the cool thing as well is that and i always say this to students is that you know make it look good i joke you know like make it look sexy because the more you really get into the flavor of silat um, a lot of these movements are actually accentuating the application as well and i'll give you an example if you're moving in your, your hand and say you're bending your wrist and you have this kind of waving motion where you're where you're emphasizing like a, a whipping motion with the tips of your finger, if you can visualize that, that is very beautiful to watch. And that's part of what we call the kambangan or the dance. That would be like a, what we call the feathers in application because there's a lot of analogies to do with um, the eagle. So feathers... That motion looks very beautiful, but the application is striking soft tissue or soft points, the eyes, the throat, the, the groin. Um, so what, what looks beautiful is, 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 is devastating in the application. And for me, that was the thing I was like, oh, I really like because it appealed to my artistic side, but also the functional, physical, the kind of moving, the mover in me, the dancer in me that wants to make it look good also feels like, oh, it actually works as well. And that was, that was when I was like, okay, Silat has something that gives me a completeness that I personally need, at least at that point. And I don't think that will change, you know, once you fall in love with a certain way, you, you know, you, you, I think you follow that way and uh, 
to see where it goes. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's super interesting. And um, maybe for the people listening, um, I think it'd be good to just maybe if you could provide maybe a quick overview of of Sealot. Yeah, sure. Well, Penjak Silat comes from Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Thailand, a lot of a lot of places. Um, but like a lot of these arts, they they've originally would have been influenced, you know, much older in China or India. So this is where, in some cases, probably why I don't go into so much the history because I think that again I like to focus on the art as an art form, and some people like to focus on the history and and even the religious aspects, and and I and I sort of leave that to the experts that do that. Um, but if you look at the, the the origins of it, it's very interesting because you know think of it more as a tribal art. So in a, in this sense, it was shared within families, very close group, because you want to be able to protect your group, and you have other rival groups or uh, invaders. So like a lot of these these arts, there's a lot of mm, let's say discussion about what the actual origins are which I think is great. It's interesting for storytelling and theorizing. And it's very interesting, you know, but what, what makes, uh, see that interesting as well is that um, we would define it. Well, there's a few things I would say. One, we have an upright art and we have a ground art. And a lot of times people see a lot of this ground art and they think, oh, see that is a ground art. And this is mm, partly true because the ground aspects in Silat is about connecting with the ground you can see also this in jujitsu because a lot of people have a fear of hitting the ground. And we, as we get older, we, we kind of separate ourselves from the ground, if you think about it, right? So if you see a child, they're, they're connected with the ground. They have a stability and mobility on the ground that we, we could only dream of. So part of the process of sea light is reconnecting to the ground. The idea is the ground, the seed hits the ground and it grows, it sprouts up from there. And from there, there's a flowering so in that progression, the student goes to the ground first, traditionally two years on the ground. You're doing particular postures. There's main, mainly four animals that we use in the ground. Um, yeah, and uh, is it, we have the cat. And, and each one has a different conditioning or different focus. So I don't want to go too deep into it because it will take a lot of time. But cat is about lower body and mobility. We have tiger, which is more of upper body. And, and, and this is more about uh, being direct and aggressive. You have turtle, which is commonly, uh, very often done on the back. And this is more of a, um, a position of um, a disadvantaged position, which can be used as an advantage. And you're training more core. So you can imagine rolling on your back. Your back is curved and your arms are up. And you're using the core of your body. So you're training your core. And then you have your crocodile. Your crocodile is training your, 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 um, your back, the back of your body. So, in um, the crocodile is about pinning. So you imagine a crocodile; it, squ- it grabs something and it spins, and it tries to destroy it that way. So every every animal has a different way of conditioning, and also a way of uh, a different philosophy, let's say, or a mindset on the ground. But each of these postures and variations of the postures are transitioned one to the other to the other on the ground. So what we do is we use it as a way to condition build up your strength, endurance, your speed, explosiveness, flexibility. And then ultimately what you're trying to do is bring that to a standing art. Because if you have the ability to come up at that point and you start to train the upright art, you have all these qualities bringing into all of your techniques. So imagine doing a round kick on the ground uh, or roundhouse. Mm-hmm. It's very challenging. But once you've trained that and you've drilled that, when you stand up, the, 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 the upright expression of that is powerful. Because you've trained it in a very disadvantaged position, 
and then you've applied it in an upright position. And if you go to the ground because of self-defense or situational or an error or um, what have you, you have the ability to use those techniques on the ground as well. So this is this this is kind of the um, the, the duality, I guess, of the upper upper or the upright art and the lower art, and the connection, the relationship between the two. If that makes sense. No, it does. And so is I noticed in kind of watching a few, I guess, demonstrations uh, on YouTube before before the interview is is there like a does it sort of specialize in using ni knives or defending against knife attacks is that part of the the art it's part of it yes what i would say in my my own approach to it because there's two things you think about in silat if you if you if you see a movement you think why is that different than other martial arts two things you have to think about one multiple attackers and two weapons so for example mm -hmm. certain blocks or movements based on a linear pattern one to one in a cage or in a situation where there's only one person you're dealing with is very different if there's two or three people and you're thinking that there could be a blade involved that you can get cut. So that, that criteria changes the footwork and how the footwork is used. And that's a big conversation itself about footwork and how that's used. But basically, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, these are the two criteria that help you define the flavor of your movement is based on that, a weapon and uh, potentially multiple attackers. So what you have is that you have certain weapons like um, uh, bladed weapons. When I, every time I teach a student, I say, okay, if you're holding a weapon, even if it's a normal stick or a pen, we train with pens as well. The first thing I tell them is think, how is this going to enhance your empty hand movement? Because if you think about it, most people think, well, never have a knife in a fight. And it's true, unless someone comes into your home or unless you're working uh, in a situation where you have access to a knife or you carry it, you know, um, in the country you live or, you know, for your, for your business or for your profession, you're not likely going to have it. So the question is, when you're training weapons, what are you looking to get out of it? So for me, it's always an enhancer. It's always a way to to go deeper into your 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 body mechanics and your physical movement to be able to better express your uh, your your art. So that's the way I use weapons. What's interesting, really interesting about silat and other arts use it as well, but we use what's called flexible weapons, and flexible weapons includes like a scarf or or a sarong or a bandana. So these are fabric that are used as uniform, which are also trained as uh, trained as weapons which is very, very interesting. Because this ties into what we talked about a little bit about feminine versus masculine. And a lot of arts say, hey, you know, yin, yang, this is the female aspect, this is the male aspect. Right. Great, fair enough. But very few martial arts, from my experience, have actually demonstrated a method to how to develop, specifically the female aspect. In Silat, it's, it's, it's quite obvious because you'll see a lot of patterns of movements and structures that are very feminine. Use of triangle, which you'll see in other martial arts as well. This concept of the three movements of Silat. There's only three things that you can do in Silat. You open, you close, or you circle. And some combination of the those. So um, in this way, it's... Um, how do I say? I lost my train of thought there, but uh, yeah, there's there's many things, many many aspects to 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 explore in this art, and 
I get I guess for me that the this male female aspect specifically is curious because if you look at fabric for example the the fabric is very soft but if you imagine like a, a towel and you wet the end of it you create a whip it's very powerful if you twist it mm -hmm. it becomes very dense so actually cutting a twisted towel or a piece of fabric is very difficult because of that density. So this concept really is also embedded in this idea of masculine and feminine that 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 using a soft weapon for a soft target doesn't imply that it's weaker or it doesn't have the same functionality. It has a lot of flexibility that a harder weapon like say a blade or a stick doesn't have. So this this kind of uh, these ideas for me are fascinating to explore as well. Um, in solo training and also in application with partners because you have a infinite of possibilities to be wearing your weapons both bladed weapons but also having a scarf and this is a, a huge exploration of how to how to handle a weapon that is so so simple and but it needs to be handled in the right way because it's soft you can't force it if you go too soft with it you don't guide it so there's a lot of analogies with this, you know, but it's like if you're dancing with someone, you need to guide, you need to have the right energy to guide, but don't force it. But if you're too passive, then you're not giving the right uh, delivery or control or um, guidance to that for it to be effective, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it does. No, that's, that's super, super interesting. Um, so is there, is there sparring involved in, in C-Lot as well? It's a good question. Um, generally speaking, no. I mean, you can, it depends how you define sparring. A lot of these arts, because they're weapons-based, we focus more on drills, and drills come in different categories, you know? We call it juru. And juru is like um, a sequence. Normally, you're training it, not like a kata. Kata is done solo. And you could say in karate terms, it's more like a, a flow drill or working towards a bunkai. Or an application so um, a lot of times the sparring is done in a simulation I, I suppose mm -hmm. because of the techniques and the nature of the techniques it's difficult to really fully pressure test them it could be done with with armor etc but then there's always the debate when you wear some type of protective gear for example you're wearing gloves you're limiting in a lot of ways, the mobility and the ability to apply certain techniques that would naturally be used um, innately in, in Silat using blades as well. So I'll give you an example, like you could train um, blade work using markers and it's been quite done. You wear a white t-shirt and then you're, you both have markers and you're training who gets, who gets cut. You see it, you see the cut, you see the marker mark on the body so this has been used in, in different martial arts as well as a way to 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 realize how many times you get cut or who gets cut first so you can imagine that very visually seeing this red marker <laughs> across your chest and it's quite clear that you got cut or how many times you got cut in that 10 seconds or that that quick exchange so um and and from my perspective and i always say this when i teach first thing i say well, first thing I say is hello, you know, <laughs> to the people. And then I say, well, listen, guys, I'm an artist. I'm not a fighter. And that's, for me, really important to say because my passion is about movement, mobility, um, personal expression, like I said, to enhance my capacities 
to feel more confident. And I know sometimes it sounds like people say, wow, then your martial art doesn't work. <laughs> and this is a longer conversation because it depends what you mean by work or is it functional or is it uh, does it work in reality? Right. But for, for me, I split it into three parts. I, I say that uh, Silat for me is a movement art, a mindful art and a martial art. So the movement is about it really working, understanding my body, my capacities, and pushing those capacities. So that's a whole other area, and especially solo training is really important. And then you got mindfulness, and what is mindfulness? Well, that's very open to interpretation, but to be mindful is to be present, to be aware of your body, to be aware of both yourself, your environment, and also the situation or, and, and or the people within that situation. And also incorporates meditation. So... When I speak about the dance that we do called the Kambangan, this is called the flower dance, the translation. And the flowering is also about your personal expression. So the flower dance is your own, on one level, it's your vocabulary of all your movements. And another level, it's your own, let's say, vehicle for entering your own state of mindfulness, your state of connectivity, your state of flow. This doesn't necessarily have to be combative. I would say for me, it's pre-combative, meaning it puts me in a state where I'm able to be as open as possible, as aware as possible, that I'm able to better respond to a situation, if that makes sense. No, it does. Um, and so would you say that I guess why you decided to stick with Silat, or I guess in your words, it's kind of the the art that you're married to now, um, is because it's the one that you found to be the most artistic or most kind of like a performance versus versus others. As part of it. Yeah, definitely as part of it, because. The classic question has always been, you know, people say I do reality-based training, and I, and I used to laugh to myself, thinking, well, my reality, for example, I live in a little town in Spain, so the idea that I'm training to defend myself is a little bit absurd in a way. So now, in isolation, what is my martial art doing for me? It's keeping me healthy, mentally, emotionally. It's giving me a feeling of being powerful, being in control. So in a way it's, um, you know, again, back to this again, uh, the forever one in martial art is different, you know? For me, I've stayed with it because it just feels right. It, it, it gives me a lot of flexibility in my own, as you said, expression, but I just see so many possibilities and it, it's so flexible. It's so flexible and I've trained a lot of martial arts and there's something about Silat and I'm in an advantage position because I've had great teachers and for various reasons, I, 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 I have been independent for several years now from a teacher and subsequently I've had to take what I had and go deeper and to understand mm -hmm. it in my way, express it in my way train it in my way, teach it in, in my way, not my way as an ownership, my way as in what do I know? Who am I? How can I move better? Both now and later. I mean, you know, when I started Silat 
10 years ago, my body is different now. I would, I could argue it's better, but you know, maybe that's the, the illusion we make, the illusion. But, um, you know, so I think that the, everyone is very different. But for me, it, it, it's just many reasons. It's, uh, but the truth is that even labeling a martial arts saying, oh, I trained this and not that, is also um, something I'm a little bit unsure of because I personally, and this is a good example of what I've gone through in this time, is I realize that how many labels we put on ourselves. Labels can be seen as a good thing and labels can be seen as a limitation. And I and I wonder in this time as I as I think and I meditate and I write and I train and I spend so much time alone in the last three weeks, I think, okay, wait a minute. Maybe I'm limiting myself by labeling even what I do. So the way around that in martial arts is train with other people, obviously. And I'm very lucky to have uh, great people around me, specifically a really, really good friend of mine, Santiago. And he is in, in, incredible breadth of experience. And when we, him and I speak for, we can't speak for 20 minutes. We speak for, for many hours on martial arts. And together we have 70, 80 years of experience when we're speaking. So that's a lot. It's a lot of stuff to share. And the cool thing is you have people that are very open-minded that talk about it. We're still like childlike. We we know what we know, but we, we remain open. We, we're curious. We share. And and when I go to train with him, he um he he has a way of teaching that maintains that that authenticity, that openness, that humility, which I value a lot. So when I go and train, I go there and I train with these guys and and these gals. And it's it's so nice because it you realize a few things that happens when you train with other teachers. One, you realize that uh, you don't know it all. You go, wow, you get surprised. You're thinking, wow, this is different. But what often happens even more so is you realize that, hey, I do that move already. I have just never been explained or... Um, have understood it in the same way or my art doesn't focus as much on that as their art does so then you go wow this is interesting in the end after x amount of decades you kind of realize that it's kind of all the same but everyone has a different slant based on what their criteria for for their own practice their own teaching and the personality their creativity and and also their audience of course who you're teaching is going to change tremendously how you approach and deliver your art. So, hope that answers your question. <laughs> no, it does. Uh, it does uh, for sure. Thank you. And it's uh, it's uh, s super interesting, kind of what you said about um, labeling being a limitation. It's something that kind of I've started to learn even over the past few weeks. Is kind of how labeling or saying like I am this or I do this can serve as a limitation like there's something kind of after you say that that maybe like unconsciously something happens deeper in your brain that you kind of don't know about and it kind of serves as a, as a limitation it's hard for me to kind of explain really eloquently but i think you kind of get the same sort of uh sort of feeling and sense as i do i get it i understand you completely some of these things are hard to explain you know um i remember meditating specifically a few weeks ago and you know, I, I listen to a lot of masters and a lot of gurus, a lot of people who who either I'll may maybe one day meet or or not, or they've passed away. People from you know different generations, different times, and 
I think we're very fortunate in this case, you know, having technology where we can listen to people talk and we, we hear the, 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 their, their passion, their, their wisdom, the distillation of so much experience. And I have a lot of influences. Sometimes when I'm meditating or I'm writing, things come in. You can call it channeling information. You can call it uh, you're connecting with a higher source. Who knows? Who knows? I remain open. But I know that when I enter a state of flow, I let go and things happen and things come out. And a lot of times uh, this happens in meditation. So things pop up and it's a great way to observe that you're not that thought. You know, and I, I really appreciate this idea you're, you're not that thought you you observe the thought but you are not that thought so when you replace it with a thought like for example my thought was i am stillness if you really say it like uh -huh. like i you become that you know and i when i was meditating i really felt like that put me in a state like it's true a lot of things are happening around us always but now a lot more in a way or less because we're in the house but things are happening and but in the center of us in our space in ourselves uh there's stillness nothing is happening or everything is happening it depends how you look at it well, let's not go too deep into that right and i realized <laughs> this this idea of like let's go inside like everyone has to go inside and i thought it's true, we, we go inside our houses, but it's the opportunity to also go inside ourselves. You know, I won't get too deep into this, but the, you know, meditation for me is something I do try to, I do practice every day and I've doubled my efforts along with other health um, habits that I do for mental and physical health and emotional health and, and every level. And, and meditation is one of them. So I think that there's a power in the words, but also there's, there's this idea that, like you said, we, we can, we choose it. We, that's the power is we choose the word that we, we label or that we embody, you know, and there, there's a certain a power in that. Yeah. It's almost like it's not the thought itself. It's your interpretation of the thought. Mm. Yeah. And the feeling that it gives you. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah. That's super interesting. Yeah. But definitely it's don't want to, don't want to go too deep down that road. <laughs> um, yeah, no, sure. It's another conversation. Yeah. It's yeah. a conversation itself for sure. So, yeah. Um, and is, so is, is C-Lot more popular in Europe than it is in North America? I don't know the statistics to be honest. All I know is that um, it's always, you know, most people maybe likely have not heard of it the average person, but people mm -hmm. in the martial arts have trained a certain amount of time, have seen stuff because everyone goes through a phase and we have access to YouTube now for what, 11, 12 years or something. So everyone has seen stuff. Um, and I don't know the popularity exactly. I, I, you know, I, I know that in Europe, there's a lot of, uh, uh, there is a lot of instructors. See that specifically because in a lot of the people who uh, immigrated to, um, to Holland from Indonesia, and that connection. So there's a lot of masters. And I, I've been fortunate to meet a lot of different teachers and, uh, you know, so, but um, it's a good question. It depends on popularity because if you're talking about masters that have like a lineage versus popularity as people practice it, because a lot of people practice martial arts right. on various levels and they pick things up and they add it, let's say like Lego to what they do already, which I think is really great. I really, I really like the idea. And Bruce Lee was, uh, of course, uh, 
the original one to this idea of uh, taking what is useful, discards, discard what is useless and, you know, to, to, to make it your own. Really, this idea, I sort of destroyed his quote there. But, um, you know, and he was influenced by a lot of old masters and a lot of philosophies as well, you know, based on this. But the idea is, you know, of, of, of exploring and be honest what you have and what you don't have and being open to first admitting that and being open to learning from other people and finding a way to connect to what you do. I really think this is important. And this is, this is again, we're back to art. I mean, art is like this. You're influenced by different people, masters living or from the past. You have your technical training, but ultimately it's about you bringing yourself out through the art. It's a vehicle. It's nothing more. It's not a, the system, a structure is only there for your own artistic development and expression, in my opinion. Right. That's the way I approach it. Right. Yeah. And as, for you as a teacher, what's your, uh, or an instructor, what's your overall philosophy on teaching, around teaching a martial art? I would say that as a teacher, it is to inspire the people. You know, because depending how much time you have with someone, you're giving them pieces to a puzzle, let's say. But the, the greatest you can give someone is inspiration. And especially now we have access to a lot of knowledge. So if someone goes away and says, I'm going to improve myself. I'm, 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 I love this movement I learned last week. So now I'm going to think about my diet. Because I, I know that if I'm lighter, I will be able to perform better. Or I'm going to learn about exercise or meditation. So of course, if you can inspire people to also not only take what you give them, but also to feed themselves, I'm, I think this is a, a really important aspect of a teacher, because if you think about it, we often use the word instructor, and then you have teacher, and then you have this new word called coach. <laughs> it's not a new word, but I like coach because a coach for me almost embodies this idea that a coach is someone that's in your corner, that's encouraging you. They give you skills, they help you develop yourself, but ultimately it's about you as an individual. And I like this aspect of coaching. And I think that even from my teaching of martial arts and the times I've taught English, and uh, it always comes back to coaching. I always feel like I'm trying to encourage them just to feel better, to, to, to be a bit more expressive, more confident, to make some good choices, some higher choices in their lives that will improve their life and improve their connection ability to be more open with people and to, to be more quote unquote successful in whatever way they define success. This is so interesting for me, you know, and for me, this is probably how it all connects to this, 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 uh, this journey into being in front of the camera as an actor, a commercial actor, because that was something I would never imagine doing. And only through meditation, through the last year of going deeper, through my own need to go more <laughs> profoundly into meditation as a healing process for me, uh, from my life changes here on a personal level, I realized that, wow, we are more than we think we are. And again, we're back to labels, but I was like, and I thought, I felt like being on a stage. I felt like being seen more. And then I realized that I have, it's true, even as a photographer, you you kind of hide behind the camera. You You have this intimate moment, but there's this big, box <laughs> between you 
And I realized that oh, I want to feel that. And and the two things I realized, I thought one, it was that I, I was feeling an element of curiosity and fear simultaneously. And then I realized, oh, that's good. That means go in that direction. Huh. Terrifying, because I thought I, I was shy. I was embarrassed always through high school, easily, completely beat red um, with embarrassment. So being uh, at least shy as uh, when I was younger, and people, most people know me now wouldn't see me as shy, but for sure I am by nature. There's an element of me that is shy or timid at times. And that can come out at moments. So I thought, what's what do you do then if you want to expand yourself? Because one of the practices I do every year, I try to think of one word that's going to define my year, that's going to give me a guiding, uh, a guiding word to focus myself. And this year's word was expansion. So I thought, okay, <laughs> let's go in front of the camera. So I said to a friend, actress friend who, who's. Uh, you know, uh, quite successful and doing some uh, some acting for Netflix here in Spain. And she was like, call an agency. You know, you have a good look. You know, they need people that look different, you know, especially for commercial clients. And there's a lot of filming done here because of the production costs in Europe. So I got out of the chat with her. I went in the street, called an agency, introduced myself, sent my CV, went in to see them. And then I was signed. And you know, and they so subsequently been to like 10, no, 10, 12 castings now. Some of them are e-castings, which I'll, I'll explain as well. And it's been cool because, you know, as a photographer, you don't really completely understand what it's like to be in front of the camera and have to perform. It's fascinating, fascinating for me. Mm -hmm. Right. What do you think about that? Is it curious? <laughs> 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 no, it's interesting how you kind of, how you kind of recognize this through your meditation and then you sort of leaned into kind of what makes you uncomfortable and that kind of brought, brought out this kind of whole new experience and world for you. Yeah, it's it's a curious thing, isn't it? Because there's expression that says, if you can't, you must. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's something you feel you can't do, there's a part of you that must do that because you are, it, otherwise it's a self-limiting belief. So it was very strange to me, and I thought, okay, worst case scenario, I become a better photographer or director. So if I have someone in front of the camera, stills or video, I can better understand their situation and better understand the psychology and methods to help them to get there. And I was already in the pro process of this anyways, because my, my focus in photography has become more about capturing performers. You know, I love work working with athletes because they give something special, the, the way they use their body and the humility they have and and their willingness to go for it. Um, but equally working with actors, is, you know, has this complexity as well and no different than working with, uh, you know, say someone who's more a celebrity or famous or um, influencer. They also bring something different as well. So I started to realize that, wow, I've got a great uh, uh, set of tools that I use pre getting in front of the camera before starting that process. But now I realize that, you know, these are valuable things. If you have a routine that you wake up and do certain practices before you prepare, you put yourself in the right state of mind, then you prepare yourself visually and you go there with low, low expectations and you just go there and you try to be your authentic self. You try to connect with the people and you get in front of the camera and you transmit the best of you 
be as authentic as close as you can to be you in the moment then it doesn't matter if they choose you or not because you're like hey you know they're going to choose you because they have some image of what the brand represents but the practice is, is being your best self in a very defined moment and preparing yourself for that so it's very close to martial arts you want to prepare yourself you know you have to be aware and prepare that something's going to happen you want to be able to remain open and to be present and trust in your tools and all that you've done before and then let go and see what happens right yeah and what are some things that people should think about um or would you kind of recommend they think about as they begin their martial arts journey i would say the same two words curiosity so follow what you're curious about. If you see something that resonates in you, then look into it. Um, if there's an element of fear in it, realize you're going to feel fear. You know, I still imagine going into a club, a new club here. I would feel an element of fear even after 30 years because right. that's that's kind of saying that you 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 take it seriously. You're entering someone else's space. You have to go there with humility. You know, and I think I remember, you know, and I had an interesting journey because you can imagine going and living in different countries where, for example, I remember going to Scotland and going to a different karate club. And I went in with, uh, you know, these backpacking pants, you know, this uh, these convertible trousers with shorts and I had a T-shirt. And I went in and trained there for, for the first month wearing normal, you know, uh, training clothes, not even gym clothes, really. And I didn't say anything about my training. I said I did some karate before in Canada and I wanted to train. And it was interesting because going in there was uh, was great because what happened is that over time, people were like, you trained before? And I was like, yes. And they're like, you trained for quite a while, yes. And you're a black belt, right? And I was like, yes. So it was nice to kind of, you know, be acknowledged and put into... Um, you know, someone else to affirm, you know, to or a confirmation of sorts of my ability uh, and my training. And that's that goes back to, you know, right back to Sensei Fagan, you know, the, the, the skills he, he he gave me. He, he always said that, you know, um, that one of the things he really tries to give the students and, you know, if they go off to other clubs, they can identify what's good or not. They, they you know, we've been given a sense of what is what is uh, what is quality, what is what is um what's the word i would use you know we can we have the ability to assess things very easily because when when you have that sort of upbringing where it wasn't about just doing what you're told but there was reasoning behind it and there's also ingenuity and and evolution and uh and development that Sensei was doing his own ways, it makes you realize that, you know, when you go to a new club, you can assess pretty quickly, is this a place you want to to be in by the energy, the feeling, the, you know, the way they present the class. Um, you know, so we, we, you know, that was a real gift. So when I'd show up, there was a sense that you had to go back in and become a beginner again, you know, not wearing a belt, seeing where I fit in in the rank. And, and that was a very, very interesting uh, process as well. Yeah, so I think for beginners going in, it's important to go and follow your curiosity, see where you're interested in. Um, if you feel fear, it's normal. Don't run away, relax. Um, it's scary because some martial arts do take more of a combative 
more aggressive, more physical approach, some more therapeutic and more more zen, let's say. And everyone, every one of them have their place in the in the whole mix. And if you can find one that has the right balance for you, fantastic, you know. And for me, it's interesting that I, I think about silat, for example. When I was learning silat, it was almost like an unraveling that it was happening because um, my my teacher in London is is uh, well considered by many, Stephen Benitez, by you know. Uh, one of the highest level of teachers and martial artists that I've ever learned from. And his ability to transmit knowledge was very unique. And there's, that's a, again, a big conversation itself. So when he would teach me a particular movement, there was almost like, not to sound mysterious, but it was so natural, almost like a remembering. So when I started doing Silat, there was, the feeling that maybe I had done it before, or let's say in my DNA or in my feeling that it, what he was showing, I could repeat very easily because it was like a feeling that he was transmitting more than it was just like a technique. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does, yes. So what I would say is trust your instincts. If you're going to a club and it feels, you know, you, it's debatable, it depends, because you need to do the foundation and some art, really important to, to, to stick it out for five years or more, I would say. Ideally, get your black belt. Because I think there's an evolution that happens really through martial arts, which is very, very curious. Because um, I remember distinctly that when I was training in karate, that, you know, you like I said, you work hard to get your black belt. And there's a point where you the, the black belt, well, it's heavy at first because you realize that you're, you're not a good black belt when you get your black belt. You know, you're at the bottom of another rung of, of level of people, you know, you're at the bottom of another level. It's a bit like going to a master's program. You're the bottom on the, in the beginning. You're not going to be a top person yeah, at that yeah. level. Maybe at university degree. Yeah. Or high school, you were the best, but at university, it's not the same. It's a different league. So in, 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 a, in a way there's this kind of, um, again, this kind of, uh, humbling, uh, aspect that that happens uh you know when you're you're uh, you're going to that uh, the beginning level so it's important to do a foundation get an understanding of what what you like um and it's good to have other references because the problem is if you jump around to a lot of martial arts maybe you have no core art and therefore you don't have a clear reference for your own way and you end up just jumping around a lot. So I think that I'm a big fan of traditional martial arts as a foundation. But that said, I really, uh, I'm also a, a, a big, uh, you know, a proponent of, of getting out there and expanding yourself, trying different things and looking for an art, like in my case, Silat, that just seems to be somewhat hardwired or embodied in the sense that I just am able to have a, a higher IQ of movement with that particular patterns, let's say, or structure of a martial art that I don't have with other martial arts. For whatever reason, I don't know. But I, th I think that, you know, again, foundation, exploration, expansion, and then if you're lucky, you find a good one. And, you know, as it, it's a joke, but this is like life with relationships, with dating. I mean, you, mm -hmm. you know, there's a, a process of finding yourself through 
other people through relationships and they come and they go and you have good ones and you have longer ones and shorter ones and then hopefully you, you get lucky and you find one that really works and you can you can you can find your best self through that art through that person that relationship um and for me i feel fortunate that i have something that it, that it feels like it's a part of me yeah it brings yeah. out the best in me right mm. and so you think it's important for maybe someone starting their first martial art for it to kind of it doesn't necessarily need to be kind of that uh, perfect fit for them the first I guess the first time or right, so like for you like it doesn't have to be like C-Lot was the first martial art that you stumbled upon it was it was karate so for someone it doesn't have to be like finding their perfect fit at first if that makes sense yeah I would agree completely with what what you're saying um because you don't really know if, if it's your first martial art, you don't know whether how it stacks up. You don't really know how good right. it could be, and you don't know if it's the right one. If you're lucky, you you, you could you could you could hit it the first you know the first time. I know people that that train in in their martial art have never left that martial art. Equally, I know people that have fell in love with their high school sweetheart and never left that person, and I think it's amazing. But what I would say is that, you know, I feel like I've been lucky that I've tried so many martial arts that when you when you do find one that resonates in you, I have references. I have a lot of references for other other ways of movement and philosophies and principles and understandings and that 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 give me something more intricate, maybe, and more complex. And I think that's the advantage of having moved and lived in different places. You know, 20 years in Europe, I... I do think like what was the sacrifice? Because if you think about martial arts, it's it's a, it's a sacrifice, probably first and foremost, for a, a passion that that really is difficult to make a living with it. So often it's done on the side, but it's something that um, yeah, it's sacrifice, but feeds you so much. And you can compare it to a lot of other activities. It be seen as very similar. It has a different slant on things, but um, so I think in, in a lot of ways that. Um, you know the the martial arts is uh, has something unique about it that is not always easy to uh, articulate for everyone, yeah. and I think that's the magic of it as well. And, and I say the same thing. Photography is the same. You have a camera. What's photography for you is different than for someone else or for me. It's so difficult to find what that is. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I want to shift topics, um, a little bit here. Um, okay. To uh, kind of your, uh, journey kind of moving to and, and living throughout Europe. Why did you decide to move to Europe, uh, in the first place? Do you want the official story or <laughs> no, I'm I mean, kidding. Yeah. I'm kidding. <laughs> well, basically, I mean, I, there was a turning point. I remember when I was in a long relationship for five years. Fantastic. But I was young. I was like 24 at the time, 25 when we when we split up. And I really felt like there was a moment where I was like, is this all there is to life? Because I was like, okay, now we should get married and then children and mortgage. And if you spoke with anyone who knows me as I am now, and imagine me 20 or 30 years ago, uh, 20 years ago then, 25 years ago, how different I was then, how young I was then. It's 
it's it's uh, an impossibility that I at 25 could have been or should have been married with children even though that socially or you know and society was kind of saying that well it's the next move because you know and so there is this kind of pressure so I remember kind of <laughs> against some resistance you know saying okay I have to I have to do this. I have to change my life. So what happened is that I, I started doing a very different job. I, I suddenly stumbled on this idea of doing rickshaw, which I think you'll find quite fascinating. If you're not familiar with it, of course, everyone has this image of these uh, these uh, people in uh, some skinny guy uh, running along in India with a cart with people in the back. But in Halifax, back in the day, this was a, a really... Um, amazing way for a select number of people, small group of people, to make a, uh, a living in the summer. So running a rickshaw was something kind of uh, elite, I want to say, but because there was only like maybe a dozen people at one point that were rickshaw runners. So there was kind of this this thing. And I, I remember sort of seeing it thinking, oh, I'd like to do that. I don't know why I was compelled to try it. So anyways, long story short, I ended up doing rickshaw, amazing. And I was never a team sport guy. So I was hanging out with the dudes and hanging out. And, and uh, you know, so it was, a, it was a nice shift towards feeling more, like one of the guys, which I never felt before, because I was never like a, a team sport, mm -hmm. you know, kind of guy. So, so subsequently, um, I was thinking like, okay, I'm going to save some money, and I'm, I was thinking to go to Australia. Long story short, met a girl. She was going to Europe, and we decided to go together. New relationship, but had this uh, feeling like, okay, let's go to Europe together. So that was great. Spent a few, uh, spent a month traveling through Europe with her. And then settled in Edinburgh and we had our own places and started our life there. And long story short, spent, spent my time in Edinburgh and then eventually was there having my own life alone. She went back to, to Canada and subsequently, ironically, went on to live in Australia, which is uh, very curious, which is where I was originally headed. Mm -hmm. So um, that's how I kind of ended up in Europe because I kind of felt like, I, I, yeah, I remember clearly there must be something more than this and and the opportunity was great because i can make some cash and then and then go off and, and explore and uh you know my brother had also previously the year i think before had also been living in london so it made it a bit easier i suppose to know that he had done it and also um for my family as well but keep in mind it was this idea of going for six months. As a lot of people do, they go backpacking and then maybe you work for a bit, and then you backpack again, and then you go home and then you settle down. I never settled down 20, <laughs> 20 years on. And, you know, Europe's been my, my, my life, my journey. Yeah. Right. So I guess it wasn't, I guess maybe you didn't perceive it as being really risky because I guess, it sound, from what it sounds like, you went to Europe not to permanently move there, correct? Correct. There was no intention of staying there permanently. Right. And what right. is permanence anyways? <laughs> what is permanence? <laughs> These days I think, what is per will you always live in Spain, people say? And I think, well, no, eventually I'll, you know, pass on like everyone else. But uh, it's a joke. Maybe it's a bad joke in this, the light of the situation. But the point is that we never necessarily set out for any sense of permanence or even clarity in our direction. And I think that's that's a great thing. Once you start 
making some bold moves, being brave. Some people say that. They say, well, you're so brave to have done what you did. And I said, well, I don't know. I think you're brave to have gotten a mortgage and and and, mm -hmm. and raising multiple children. It's also very brave. Um, so it's all relative, I suppose. Yeah. But certainly yeah. for me, that was that was the way that it evolved in my life. And, and that's kind of how it's been for the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. And what new perspectives on life, um, work, martial arts have you gained from living in different countries? Many, I mean, countless. It's probably even difficult to separate how I've changed versus how I would have been if I would have stayed. Because it's always difficult to, to know how would one evolve differently if their life you know, choice would have been quite different. Um, I think for me, it's allowed me to be the explorer, you know, to not just the explorer, but let's say to be able to steer my, my life and my curiosities and to be open to finding myself by finding different places. And the great thing about when you move to a different place is you can reinvent yourself because no one knows you. Mm-hmm. So if you show up in a place, and I remember going to Scotland thinking, okay, I'm a photographer. I studied that. I, I worked in it. I was doing a lot of more retouching and I assisted other photographers. And then there was a point where I was like, okay, right. It was the internet boom, 2000. I thought, I'm going to be a web designer. <laughs> so I didn't have a lot of experience, worked a bit with my brother and, you know, had worked on a few things on my own. And it was a time when anyone could get a job if you were creative and you you were you were, you know you wanted to do that kind of work. So, this idea of reinvention is is a great thing because, again, back to labels. When you go to a new place, people will label you. Ah, you're from Canada. Ah, you speak English. Ah, you you know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But you also have the opportunity to, to shift, or to let's say, uh, yeah, shift your focus, on what you want to become. And part of that is having the freedom to do that, which you have when you go to another place, which you don't necessarily have if you stay in the same place or around the same people. So that's a freedom that you get when you move, that you are able to, to start fresh, keeping what you want from your, your past or your understanding of what you want, but also being open to influences and, and, and this idea of reinvention. So th this was a, a pretty cool thing that also I learned from, from traveling. Um, of course, when you travel, you get to be in, uh, exposed by new people, new teachers, incredible. I mean, I remember being in Edinburgh and, and London as well. I mean, there's so many, the, the, the teachers, the caliber of the, the, the teachers was incredible. I remember going to so many seminars and traveling through Scandinavia. I have a big connection. You know, my, my grandfather was from, um, you know, in our lineage, Rasmussen is uh, from Denmark. And I met so many nice Scandinavians and uh, it was really, really incredible to, to, uh, to be exposed to such a high caliber of multifaceted. And, 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 and these people have such high levels in many martial arts, you know, their their dedication their their you know their level of skill was enormous so having that influence was quite quite amazing you know i was a bit like a as they say a kid in a candy store i was 
just like an awe of the ability to go one week into the next or just fly over to Sweden or to Norway or to Denmark or or to mainland Europe to, to learn from different teachers and also within the UK, of course, um, the UK has a huge, enormous amount of talent with instructors and martial arts is a big, big thing there. So this was also a big, a big factor. And then of course, the from a creative point of view, you're seeing a lot of art, influence, architecture, a lot of things you're being influenced by. And, and of course, as I was journeying in photography, I was also traveling and also realizing what photography was for me. And I ended up doing fashion because I, because I felt like I needed to combine what I felt was that I enjoy photographing people, but there was a sense of identity that you could get with being a fashion photographer. It was kind of cool. So I sort of, sort of went on that route and that also gave me the, the luxury to reinvent again, to, to become uh, or to let's focus my energy and my projection towards something that would would allow me to develop in a different way. And again, another luxury you have when you when you when you change your physical space and the people around you is you can become whatever you want. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And so would you would you encourage everyone if they if they have the means to get the experience of living in a different country for an exp an extended period of time? Yes, 100%. If someone has the opportunity and the means to, and the courage to leave what you know, the security, the comfort, the, yeah, home, <laughs> not easy to leave. Mm -hmm. If you have the ability to do that and the capacity alone or with someone else, um, it's an incredible education. And I was thinking about this this week as well. You know, let's be honest, the education, how people are learning now and sharing online is is, is increased so much these last uh, few weeks here anyways in Europe. And I'm sure that you'll see a huge wave in America as well. Um, we realize that education is um, is online. Education is in, in your own practice. I mean, I, I only discovered education, the appreciation, appreciation of the English language, discovered writing, reading, only in the last five years because of the Spanish language. It made me realize that, wow, I've got something really good. So I really started to go into this, this aspect. So um, this is another factor, you know, you realize what you have and maybe what you don't have and you and you and expand your way of thinking like okay these people have similar things but also have something different there's a different slant there's a different emphasis or focus so absolutely if someone can go travel to be exposed to evolve in a in a different environment and have some of the benefits and and, and more of the some of the some of the things i've been sharing it's it's i don't want to say paramount sounds extreme but i think it's it's so important. This idea of a leap year, leap year, gap year, <laughs> leap year, mm -hmm. uh, gap year is, is, yeah, I think it's really good. But, you know, the danger is that you end up like me <laughs> somewhere <laughs> else in the world, but there's no danger. You're just, you're just on your own journey. And I think by traveling, it does remind you that you, you have your own journey and there is sacrifice. You know, uh, the times I think that I would love to be with my family especially in moments like this, is a sacrifice. It's a, it's a con conscious decision that you make over and over again to find what you're looking for, find what is in you, find a way to bring out what is in you, 
into the world and try to create something that has some value and 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 purpose and some some greater sense to help other people and and this is an amazing time when we're in our house and we go inside and we reflect and and you you made a reference to reflecting as well which i thought it was great to hear because i think this is one of the benefits we're having now is reflection clarity reassessing our values and looking where we want to go where we could go and why we want to go somewhere not necessarily physically go but in ourselves or in our purpose so this is an amazing time we're we're uh, going through mm-hmm. yeah that's super that's that's interesting i've been i've been toying with the idea of of moving um moving somewhere i guess relatively far away for the past few few years and been kind of kind of figuring out kind of what the right time when the right time might be or kind of waiting when the timing is perfect and the stars or the stars are aligned but in kind of taking this time to reflect i don't know if the timing may never be right and i just kind of have to take the risk obviously the time isn't right now given the the current situation and circumstances but whenever the dust settles i might just need to kind of take take the leap I would say so. I think that if it's something that's this, you know, this this feeling you have inside, this curiosity, this, yeah, this burning sensation that's growing that you feel like you need to expand by being in another place, I think it's important to listen to that. That's an instinctual thing. That's the feeling that maybe you are being confined or you are being limited in your own experience in your own development based on things that you're not even aware of in your society and the people you're around and and I, I think that you know this subtlety is something we try to tune into in these moments and if if you feel it more strongly in a moment where you are being forced to self-isolate um, that is saying something in my opinion and is there ever a good time to do anything because there's always a sacrifice. There's always something you give up for something more or something different or something new. Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, no, I would for sure. I definitely would. Mm-hmm. Moving to, so I want to move to uh, your photography um, and your acting. Do you specialize in a particular, particular type of photography? Well, it's changed. Like I said, I was working in fashion for many years. And when I was living in Edinburgh, I sort of, uh, I'd spent a, a year actually in Barcelona and I started kind of meeting people related to fashion sort of randomly. Okay. So then I started toying and started playing a little bit with this. And then when I went back to Edinburgh, I decided to contact a, an agency and I focused on that. Long story short, I went to Glasgow, got an agent and from there it developed into, um, you know, a real focus on fashion. Uh, but subsequently, there was a moment in London, I realized that I was quite frustrated that what happens in fashion, I mean, it's very collaborative. So it's not something you can do sort of in a small group. To do it well, you do it as a, as a, as a big group. So what happened is I found some frustration that a lot of times you, you create a, a beautiful photo. You, you know, you really crafted the light and you're trying to get that connection and create that right expression. And then you have retouching that you're trying to, you know, uh, enhance or modify the image for whatever... Uh, vision or um, need from the client or your own vision 
And but people would dismiss the images just based on I don't like that scarf or I don't like those those shoes. And you'd be like, oh, and that was quite crushing as a as a photographer. So subsequently, I was like, what is the essence? The essence for me is about connecting with someone. And I remember when I studied photography. I remember when I was a kid in British Columbia, and my grandparents had a book by uh, Karsh, famous uh, portrait photographer. And I still remember these images. So I start to reflect back thinking, yeah, it's about people for me. So subsequently, I, like I said, I've been focusing more on people. The, the, the climate and the, the, let's say the, the level of value in, in Spain is not easy to, in general, for creativity and photography has been like that as well. So I've subsequently have tried to focus more on photographing people who interest me you know, the most interesting project I did the last year was working a calendar for um, for children with cancer. And it was very interesting because the, the, the people that I work with and the kids, the celebrities, there are various levels of um, notoriety here in Spain. But the way they were with the kids and, and, the, and the moments that we created were unreal. Just, I mean, we, we I captured the photos, but the photos can't even express what it felt like to be in that moment and to be a part of that and for me that was like a kind of like an awe moment like okay <laughs> it's definitely not about me i could be a part of the process i can orchestrate things i can set the lighting set the stage invite the people but in the end it's something happens within that that is um excuse the term but magical you know, there's something that, that happens that is very special. And if you look into like stuff like flow state, which is very interesting, if you, if you look in this, Chiksang Sent Mihai is his name. It's a famous book called Flow. And if you talk about flow state, when you enter this flow state, you know, you kind of lose a sense of time. You become less uh, conscious of your appearance or self-conscious. And uh, you're completely focused on a, on a specific task that is either at your skill level of high or higher. So when you look at this, uh, and I looked at kind of the moments that I, I'm most, let's say were most memorable or I most crave more of was when I was performing or teaching martial arts, in this case, Silat, or I was uh, in the middle in the thick of a photo shoot in that moment where you're really connecting and there's something that really, really special happens um, in that moment that uh, it's hard to explain. So for me, it's about creating a moment. And that sounds like a cliche, but there's a lot of things that go into creating a situation. And then you have to let go. And that's something I learned as well. You set things up, but ultimately you have to let people be themselves. You have to play. You have to create the energy and feel their energy and, 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 and create a connection and this is the skill of a photographer, in my opinion, because when I was in London, I got to assist with a famous photographer. And what was really interesting is that people often criticize when they see photographers who have a lot of assistants and they say, yeah, but this photographer never touches his lights or her lights, never sets things up. And I always thought there's a point where you don't need to touch the light because your team knows your vision you you are there to uh, direct them into what your vision is, or they know they can anticipate. 
your job as a photographer is to connect with the subject, to get the best, to create the best moment, depending on the energy you need to give to receive this dialogue with words, without. This moment, this flow state, as I call it, this is, this is what it is to be a, a portrait photographer or, a, you know, as a general term, is to, is to be able to get the most out of that. If you do that, you create something special that, in my opinion, is far greater than the images, which is good and also difficult because mm -hmm. the best of those experiences are in my mind yeah. Right. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And would you say that when you're in this flow state, when you're photographing people, is when you get the best uh, shots or photographs? Yeah, for sure. Because I think there's a combination of preparation and then letting go. So if you overthink, if you overplan, there's a point where you just have to let it go. It's almost like we try to lock everything down, but the, 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 um, the great thing about any creative process is that it's restriction. If you restrict the possibilities, or if you set, say, the fixed variables, then you're going to have this opportunity to expand within those structures, and that's where creativity comes. You know, the worst case scenario is a client says, I need you to create this, you have infinite amount of time and infinite amount of budget. Very difficult situation. But if you have limitations, that's when you really perform well. And I think that's what happens with a photo shoot that's done well. You create structure, you make decisions in advance, you lay everything out, people come in, and then you have to improvise. You have to remain open. You have to realize it's not necessarily the shot that's in your head. It's, it's what happens when you allow the muse to do their thing you know <laughs> yeah you know even the word genius you know there's this originally a genius you had a genius so you allowed your genius to enter in through your art and they did the rest but now we say you are the genius he is the genius she is the genius but it's not true because in the original sense you have to allow something to happen and to channel through you. So this is the challenge when, when you, if you're too intellectual, you think a lot like me, it's, and writing it helps me a lot with this, is that it allows me to get a lot of things out so that when I enter a situation, I can be more 100% in the moment. And I try to practice this with people. You know, one of the realizations I realize in the last year specifically, I remember writing one day and realized that it's a cliche, but it's so true. The best gift you can give anyone is to be 100% focused on them, 100% in the moment. If you think about that, think about the times where you've been with someone and they give, they've given you 100% of them, eye contact, energy, attention. There's something that happens in that moment that you can't really replicate you can only practice it and i think with photography it also allows that because you get an excuse the camera is an excuse for me to stare at someone to talk with them to speak with them in a way that is more relaxed or more familiar 
far beyond the amount of time I've known them. This is a gift. This is a, a, an opportunity that you create a real bond with someone very quickly. That even after 10, 15 minutes, people say, wow, what a great moment, the way you work. And I felt so, so something special in front of the camera. And that's what you want to feel as a photographer. Me personally is that. Yeah, of course you're creating images or you're creating video, but the moment, and again, it's that integrating the mind and body and being present is the power that we have. And that's what I'm sort of in pursuit of with people, I suppose, and, and also with myself is to try to use these, uh, these, these different skills and approaches for myself and for other people to, to, be, to be our best version always or in a particular moment that you have to really perform or, or to give your 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 most authentic best self mm -hmm. it interests me a lot yeah that's interesting i didn't realize kind of and kind of how you expressed all that how much of a a service you're providing i guess um your client and kind of how that manifests into a deeper connection with them through kind of your your interaction with them and you you're photographing them it's interesting mm. yeah, it's about being authentic you know ultimately and like i said in front of the camera is the same people say acting and like well i'm not acting i'm just going there to be my best self it's the same thing when i'm looking at someone i don't want them to be different if i'm going to photograph them or i'm going to direct them to you know say for video or for stills it's you know, it's difficult in the sense that you don't want to change who they are. So it's almost the classic thing is this. I imagine it we're in the studio and and Chase, you sit down and I say, Okay, yeah. I'm just gonna test the light. So you're relaxed. I'm just testing the light. It's not about you. I take a picture. It's a great picture. I show it to you. Oh, this is great. Oh wow. That's great. Okay, let's start. What happens? You start to think. Yeah. Right? You mm -hmm. you start to be aware of your body posture and you're like, okay. So then I start to think, okay, he's thinking. So I'm thinking that you're thinking. So I have to do a lot of things that happen this moment because basically I realize that the best shot I'm going to get is the first shot until I can get you back to a relaxed state of when you came in, when you thought it wasn't about you. Hmm. So that, there's where the work is. So once I get back to that stage where you're flowing and you realize that you have the you know, we're getting good shots. You realize in the end, I say, listen, you choose the shots that you want. There's no shots that are gonna be bad shots that you're not happy with. If the photo is nice, you can choose it if you don't like the photo. So you give that element of control to the, to the client as well or the subject. And um, so there's a lot of psychology. There's a lot of being uh, curious and playful that is so much fun but you gotta do your technical stuff and then you have to let it go. And that, that I think therein lies the art of everything. <laughs> if you have a lot of things in your head about what you're doing in martial arts, for example, are you able to feel and to perceive in the same way until it becomes a natural, I wouldn't say automatic, but let's say ingrained or embedded sets of patterns and movements and a feeling and a sensation then you're able to focus on what's happening around you and your partner. And I think it's the same in dance. I think it's the same in intimacy. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, at first when we're inexperienced, we focus on ourselves, don't we? 
We don't have the steps. We don't know how to do it. And then once we have the steps and we kind of get some confidence, we start to be aware that we don't have to think about what we're doing. We can focus on what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And that's where, the, that's where the true connection comes because then you don't have to think about the lighting any more than the footsteps or any more, any more than what, what that particular person wants or needs in that moment, you know, or, or what you need, I should say. You're focused on them. You're focused on what is happening in that moment. You can observe and, and give the right amount, the right focus on them because everything else is kind of embedded and it's happening intuitively you know, under the surface and you don't even realize what's happening. It's something, and again, it's, I wouldn't say it's automated. It's become ingrained. It's a process that is organic and ever-changing and you can't focus on it. As soon as you focus it, focus on it, you come out of the flow state. Right away you leave. Flow state's over. As soon as you go, hey, I'm in a flow state, it's over. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah, the trick. Right. Yeah. Yeah, try it. Try doing something that you're in the flow and then tell yourself, hey, look at me, I'm flowing. And you'll realize you're not flowing anymore. Yeah, no, I've definitely I've definitely recognized that before um, when I was playing playing tennis matches, if I was uh, in the zone is what I would call it. And then I'd realize that I'm in the zone. I'm no longer in the zone kind of after that point on. Hmm. Yeah. It's a delicate balance because our mind wants to take control again, you know? Yeah. So are there like photography critics like out there, like there are food critics? Ooh. Just, mm. just curious. I suppose there are. I mean, there's a lot of uh, competitions and people who I guess are assessing and judging, mm-hmm. you know, what is what is good. I suppose it depends. I mean, I... I guess I never really went that direction because okay. ultimately the client is the one who decides and, and in many cases the art director. So when I was doing, you know, larger work with, for example, uh, you know, in fashion, there would generally be a client and an art director along with makeup artists, uh, clothing stylists, of course, models, makeup, hair. So there was, there's a lot of people. So in that, in that case, the, I wouldn't say it's a critic, but you have someone who has a very clear image of what they want. And your goal is to, to give them that to ideally to exceed their expectations of what they can achieve, what can be achieved on a shoot. So as far as the, the critique, I think, um, or a critic specifically, um, I'm sure they exist, but again, it depends on what your photography is or what area you're working in. I see. And uh, whether you give them that power or not, <laughs> in a sense, because you have to hand over the power to say, oh, what you decide is is either validating what I create or not. And this is hence the challenge of being an artist in general is that we have a self-critic and we also have external. But in my experience, the self-critic is the one that I'm managing. And I do it all the time. Now when I produce a video and I'm like hesitating to share something or to share some photography or my writing, you know, I'm too working on this process now whereby I am the critic. I can pretend that it's because I'm thinking from the perspective of someone else who I think may or may not critique me. But the fact is, I'm doing it. I'm the critic. And I'm the one I have to overcome. So the external critic, someone, it's probably, unless they're 
invested as in paid to do that um i don't think it's relevant but it's not always easy to separate it in my experience right got it okay what what's your take on the use of photoshop to alter images of people well, I think it comes down to what the purpose is. You know, in fashion, you're creating a story, an image, an idea, a lifestyle. So, you know, there's a lot of interpretation there. So even the model is someone who typically is often much younger than they even appear once they're already, when they're made up with makeup and they come out. Because right. you see them come in and very often they're very young girls. I mean, sometimes they get their parents. You're thinking, okay, which means they're a minor. So when they come out and you're creating those photos, it's like, wow, they look so different. They've, you know, they look like a woman. So there's an element that uh, it's very, it's very odd, you know, in, in fashion when I really even say it now after so many years. Um, but the point is Photoshop has a purpose. It has a ability, a gift in a way that we never had when I studied photography. You know, I was in the dark room. I fell in love with photography and it was something very special very magical about it that that is hard to experience now in my opinion <laughs> my second year photography was the first year they offered this new course called digital imaging and they had this uh, new program called photoshop so that kind of tells you how old i am <laughs> photoshop one incredible it was an incredible moment because uh it well, it was the beginning of a whole new way of creating images. So if you're talking about authenticity of a person, you know, the debate is always this one is that, okay, well, back in the day, a painter would interpret you. So if a painter is going to paint a portrait of Chase, they're going to interpret you based on flattering you or making you look the best because that's, it's going to immortalize you. Mm-hmm. So I suppose in a way, Photoshop does give you that ability to enhance and to shape someone visually in a way that could be seen as less authentic, but again, depends on what your purpose is. If you're trying to capture yourself authentically, then of course you don't want to retouch it, but still lighting is also a distortion or a manipulation of reality. So if I do a self-isolation portrait as I did a few weeks ago, I decided not to retouch it. Did I pump the contrast a little bit or did I adjust the color balance or, you know, these things you could argue aren't, as a photographer, these aren't called retouching or manipulation. These are just things that you, you do because you have the control in post and it just gives you a little bit of a punch, let's say that you are looking for but I didn't touch it. I left the lines and the skin, the blemishes. Um, and that was refreshing because that's also uh, challenging as a photographer because uh, you know you have so much control. So to give out a photo that of yourself, accepting your what you look like in a moment and especially a challenging moment and not retouching it is, is, was a nice exercise. Not an easy one, but part of my process of getting used to being in front of the camera. It's about accepting myself more and realizing it's not just the image. It's how you transmit your energy that completely changes that way you are perceived and also captured in video or stills is your energy, your state comes through that, through that into the image. 
And I really see that more and more. So I, I trust a little bit more in that in myself as a practice. So Photoshop is, a, is an incredible, incredible tool. But I, I feel that there is something missing in not having the darkroom experience that we used to have. And I think that if we get too worked up in creating the most perfect photo of someone, are we saying that naturally they are not as attractive or beautiful or authentic enough? Are they not enough? So, you know, this is, a, again, a longer conversation about, right. the, <laughs> you know, about people accepting themselves. And I was a part of that for many years, but I definitely favor trying to get the shot in camera trying to light it and do the things the best I can technically. And then, like I said, being open to what happens. But it's difficult not to go hit a slider, take out a little blemish. Because in the case of that, you don't want someone to feel like bad about themselves as well. So it's not that you're necessarily making them look better. You're just removing anything that's going to A, make them feel a little bit bad about themselves, or B, distract the eye so you focus on something that you didn't see in camera or you didn't want to change because it would have been too much work to do in camera. So you just do it afterwards. So that that's probably where the balance is, somewhere between those those two aspects. Right. No, that that uh that makes sense. Um and kind of the reason I ask is there's this there's been this kind of long going conversation around kind of almost like the ethical use of Photoshop and around kind of altering the images of people. And then when you release those images out into the world, a lot of people can have a lot of different perceptions about it. So it was it's, uh, just interested in kind of getting your, getting your take, but it sounds like kind of making sure you're kind of making the purpose known as to why you used Photoshop is, is kind of very mm. important. Yeah, it could be as well. I mean, a lot of people use Photoshop. Also, you're you're creating a sense of style. There's a there's a combination of how you shoot, the angles, the lens you use, um, obviously posing, what depending on what you're shooting. If you're shooting a person, the composition, but then there's also the post production offers a chance to further explore creativity and the possibilities of enhancing and creating your distinct stamp or your distinct style that you're putting over your images. So. To exclude that is uh, would be a big uh, limitation that would um, it would place a big limitation on 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 a photographer in a way. Mm -hmm. But the truth is this: in London, for example, um, I learned very quickly uh, that uh, most photographers don't retouch their own photos. You know, they're professional retouchers. Paper image, or you say, I wanted this done, and they say, okay, this is the quote to do that image. I want to have this kind of style, we call color grading or grading over it. And they would know the specific photographer's style. So when that photo, that group of photos came in with the selection, they would process it in a certain way that have a certain standard of expectations, a certain preferences that photographer has given. And they would produce a series of images that would embody that style of the photographer does that make sense it so does. they would have this raw image so it was incredible because you think well these guys are really these people are really amazing artists in themselves they they have a a very high technical skill level they have the right amount of artistic and technical that balance and they they uh they can make a consistent um 
consistent series of images, which is super important depending on, uh, in all cases, really consistency with the style and, and, and the look and the color grading is really important in these situations. So that was a very interesting uh, aspect, you know, that, uh, you know, to be on set with a, with a high-end photographer who would show up, they'd be talking to the art director. They're speaking with, uh, with the client and with the subject. The last moment they put their hand out and the camera gets put in their hand and they're shooting and they hand the camera back to the assistant and they continue talking. And for me, that was like, that's next level, <laughs> you know, that's next level for sure. And I, and I see why it's important because like I said before, you know, the, the connection and the direction, the orchestration of it is in that. The other stuff is is uh, is part of it, but and the retouching is the same. That those images are sending to a retoucher. That's another art form entirely. And the people say, "Wow, their style is amazing." But if you see the raw images, you go, "Hmm, <laughs> they're not the same level." Right. It's that overlay. That process is is paramount for establishing that style. Did it come from them? Probably. But still, that part is is uh, is really important in high end photography. That that retouching is uh, is, is is a big factor. Mm -hmm. I see. And moving into acting now, did you did you want to specifically get into commercial acting, or is that maybe a typical first step before you act in, I guess, movies or TV? Well, like I said, it's just early days. I mean, I signed with this agency in December. Um, my right. intentions were simply that maybe it would be an interesting experience that would allow me to expand. Okay, right. You know, going back to your word at the sorry, I was just gonna say going back to your word at the beginning of the year expansion. Yes. So I thought, oh, what a great opportunity for expansion! I'm gonna go and see how far I can go. So it was. Curious because, like I said, what you realize initially is that um, they just want you. And the advantage I have here is because I have like, you know, sort of blonde, sort of surfer-ish looking guy with blue-green eyes. Then I do stand out over other people who have sort of a Mediterranean more look, typical, you know. Um, so you kind of realize that, okay, everyone has a place. You see in advertising, it's not, it's not necessarily the... the um, the most, um, let's say, quote unquote, attractive in a stereotypical way. They're just a mix of people that have an energy, they have, they maybe they're interesting, curious, and they project something that the brand wants to see. So for me, it, it makes sense to to go in this direction because there's, you know, and, and also it's, a, it's, a, it's another possible uh, avenue for income as well. In a very short, you know, in a day's work, you can make a decent... Uh, you know, a decent amount of cash, but you do have to go to a lot of castings. You know, I've been what we call um, optioned. So if you get optioned on a job, basically it means if you've gone to a casting, so normally I get sent an email and it says, okay, uh, this is the casting. This is what you're expected. These are the reference. Sometimes you get photos, video. Um, these are the, the rates. You get paid this. If they use your face recognizably in the final advert, then you'll get paid this much as well. So it's all super clear laid out, expectations. This is the casting. So you show up and do the casting. I always show up. My, my routine is show up really early and um, chat with a few people. Remember, it's in Spanish mostly, sometimes in English. So for me, it's like 
getting connected with a few people showing up because often they're going to be the people you're going to be in the room with first so you're going to be in the same space and sometimes collaborating or interacting with them to create the scene that you're replicating for the casting and the casting director shows that later to the client and the client makes uh, an option so oh, i like these three so they option you i've been optioned a few times and i'm waiting for one now but of course we're in a state of delay so Right. Fingers crossed in a few months, maybe I get to do my first uh, commercial project. So if I get that successfully, they tell you, okay, here's a fitting day. And then you do the fitting for the clothes. And then you go for the day of the shoot. And uh, and that's it. You just go and perform. And so I'm really desperately looking forward to that experience because that's what I focus on. I just I just visualize that. And it makes me excited to think that how great it will be to be in that situation. And I want to see the lighting. I want to see how they direct the group. I want to, I'm there to, you know, to, to, to gain some knowledge as a, as a, as a visual artist, as a photographer. And, you know, I, I want to see how they do the thing. So I'm there kind of a, like a spy in a way. <laughs> I also want to see what they're doing. So I want to, and I also want to know how the people perform. I love watching casting to see, how surprising it is how people can be so just ordinary looking, but they get in front of the camera. And I remember recently going to a casting and this 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 lovely lady, she must have been in her 80s. What a sweet lady. And the, and, the, and one of my fellow actors, he, he, uh, he looked at me and he kind of nodded, like saying like, you know, what, watch her. And she went up and it was incredible how she was able to emote such a beautiful, genuine range of expressions. You know, if you're asked, look at the camera, like you're looking at someone you, you are in love with. It's, it's, a, it's an art. And now you're looking at something beautiful, but it, it's also very sad. It's tragic. Oof. This is, a, this is a, a real interesting thing. And this woman was amazing. <laughs> you know, it was like, a, you just think this is a master. You know, she's a master at being able to go in and connect with a sensation, a feeling, emotion, and to transmit that in such an authentic way and just being by, asked to do that in a moment. And that was, that was like, okay, this is, this is what I'm there to learn, both as a performer, let's say, and also someone who is looking to capture performers and to coach them to, to find their excellence. So... This is what my union of what I'm trying to do is coming together as. And, uh, and that's why these castings are so interesting for me. Right. So there's no, or not necessarily no kind of end goal or ultimate vision for you in this, uh, in this, I guess, pursuit of acting. It's more about executing on your, I guess, word of the year and kind of expand it, expanding and expansion for you. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the thing is, though, when you meet these actors, you realize that one of the questions they ask, they ask you is, are you an actor? And I always say no. Because in that genre, when you show up, they're asking you, have you trained as an actor? Is that your profession? Okay, you work in other jobs, you make money other ways, like a lot of actors do in, in many parts of the world, including the, the America, I'm sure. You know, uh, but the the point is that you you know you say no, and you realize why do you say no? And it's like it's true because these people have studied and sacrificed, and they have a different skill level, and and albeit a lot of them also are doing theater, 
and they're doing different types of acting. So you're doing the difference between working on a theater, they're doing much more larger, exaggerated movements because you can imagine in distance, you have to see expression and movement. And that's part of the, the delivery and the experience that the, the audience would see. Whereas in camera, close-up shots, it's about subtleties. And you see this art and I see it and I go, wow, this is another skill level. So I subsequently um, signed up and I, I was offered a place. You have to apply to, uh, this one was called Centro de Cine. It's like a center of cinema in Madrid. And I was accepted, but of course, in this situation, it's been delayed. But the plan is basically you do a, you do a part of it is about improvisation and about uh, both in, in your uh your body expression and movement and and also you're doing camera work so you're learning how to do the kind of emote certain things and work on different kind of uh, improvisations and scenes just based on a certain you know a certain idea and interaction with someone else you know like a monologue in a sense but you're interacting with other people so you start to appreciate when you go to castings that uh, there's a big difference so subsequently i realized that i want to study it i'm curious it's along with this idea of expansion and again everything i learned about how to be the best version of me and to explore acting and expression and this very you, you know as i said new art form for me the better i am as someone behind the, ca the camera and directing and trying to get the best out of sounds. So I'm kind of going in thinking that, well, I get the, you know, I get two for one in a sense, plus I get to meet interesting people and uh, yeah, and to feel challenged. So I definitely plan to when everything <laughs> goes back to normal, quote unquote, mm -hmm. when we get our freedom back a little bit is to, is to continue on to learn and uh, to, to, to gain a, a deeper appreciation for what it is to be an actor. Because I say commercial actor because I just go there as myself for a commercial client to represent something that will best uh, sell their product, essentially. You know, it's very different than someone who's playing a character and has to really go much deeper into, uh, into right. their own psyche and express something deeper. But I'm definitely curious about this and I find it very interesting and I will, I intend to follow that as far as uh, as far as it leads me and see where it goes you know just for curiosity and expansion nothing mm -hmm. else yeah right right yeah and and we've obviously kind of touched on um, at various points uh, in the interview kind of how this current pandemic and situations has, has affected has affected you and kind of your different interests but kind of overall what's it like for you to be living in Spain right now in this current situation that we're in I'll give you an example. Mm, yesterday, I had to go to the doctor, which I waited three days for because I had some reaction in my eye and a bit of swelling. And I thought, okay, I'm going to ride it out a little bit to see what happens because the last thing I want to do is show up in a medical facility, even if I live in a little village, which is very quiet, definitely very quiet now. I thought, I'm going to wait because I don't want to be a part of the burden of the health system. And I thought my body's going to take care of it and Eventually, I was like, right, I'm going to go at the right time when it's quiet. So I end up going yesterday in the evening, walking there, not a soul out. I don't think I even saw a car moving in the street. So I showed up there and very strange anyways, because there's no one there. And then the lights flicker on and the doctor comes out and talks with me, 
two meters away, you know, six or no, more like 10 feet away. And I have to explain it and kind of show. And of course, in Spanish, is always interesting anyways. For me, it's uh, entertaining because these days I'm not practicing my Spanish much. So when I go out, it's like, okay, I have to switch the chip, we say, right. and switch into Spanish mode. So what happened basically is that and, and eventually gave me a, uh, two pieces of paper. One, prescription. Explain how to do everything. Great. Pharmacies open down the street. Paper number two, authorization that says I'm allowed to be in the street. It says exactly the time that I was there with the doctor purely for the event that I'm stopped by the police. Hmm. So that's kind of where we're at. And the strange thing I was thinking about today, I was thinking, what, what is the, and we talked about words before, you know, the power of words, lockdown, we're on lockdown. And I was like, that's the, the most, it can be a heavier, more uh, weighted term than being on lockdown. It's like a punishment. And I thought, what is the better way to say it? And I thought, like, conscious isolation, maybe? I was thinking that could be a nicer way to say it, that you're choosing mm-hmm. the, you know, conscious decision to isolate for the greater good of the people. But this lockdown, I was like, wow. But it felt like that yesterday. So that was one experience I had recently. I thought, this is, this is, this is, a, this is a reality. Of course, when I go out to go grocery shopping, once a week I go out for my sanity and also to stock up because let's be honest in the end you run out of anything that resembles something interesting to eat in any combination so you're like chocolate you know whatever you (laughs) crave you're like okay it's worth going out but that said you have to justify you have to keep your receipts in case you're stopped i don't know if they're going to check and say hey listen you have beer and chocolate this is not considered necessary <laughs> right but uh i haven't experienced that side of it but when you go to the grocery store they, they do limit the amount of people that can go in you have security uh giving you gloves that you have to put on and you have lines marked on the floor that separate the amount of distance before you can go and check in your or check out your items so they have plastic barriers set up that are blocking the the airways between you and uh, the the cashier. So the, these experiences are kind of the only experiences I've had because people say, you know, people still ask me, how's it going in Spain? And I'm like, I have no idea. I mean, once you're in, you're in. Once you're inside, my perception of what's happening out there is is limited to none, only through whatever I choose to very selectively listen to or watch, quote unquote, news, because a lot of it is just a lot of noise. And what I have learned is the balance between how much information you allow in when you're in isolation. Mainly because I'm in isolation alone, and I think it's a unique experience because you realize your ebb and flow of your moods. And I, I, the first week was great. I thought, this is no problem. I got this. The second week was a range of all the possible emotions that I could have imagined feeling one day or one moment to the next. This was quite surprising to me because I thought, A, I know myself. B, I have a lot of tools to feel good. And some moments were not good. And then I was writing a lot and I was like, mental health. This is going to be a real thing to watch out for. And so I feel like 
this moment we're in has a lot of benefits and it's not taking, of course, I'm not excluding the fact that a lot of people are suffering and dying and um, one has to, I think it's important to, to be optimistic in this situation and look at how you're going to come out of this as a, as a, as an individual or as a family or as a community, because especially individually or as a family, it's, you know, I heard a quote recently, it's it, it, this idea that if one is thinking that when they, after the quarantine, that one is going to have the same job or the same job title, um, if, the, if one is thinking they're going to have the same, they, they probably, they need to change that way of thinking because there's a good chance that, that there's going to be a big restructuring, a big revaluing of what roles are, what is, what is your job, what is your purpose. So I've tried to go into this quite a bit with, uh, with my own practices and realize that, okay, this is the time to be the coach. This is the time to be the one who's bringing all the tools together to create a different purpose in my life. Image making is great, but will people uh, value image making as they did before? I would say no. Will they value more health and mental health, physical health, coaching and trying to feel good and perform better in a more challenging world? Yes, they will. So I realized that it was almost the idea that, okay, then I'm going to follow that because that is the feeling I have and the environment that I'm in or the feeling of what will come or my perception is that there's going to be, like I said, a restructuring of values within the individuals, within society. And, uh, you know, if you want to work, which we all need to make a living, we need to think of how we're going to best give back to the world. So for me, it's good because it gives two things at once, great value and also a deeper fulfillment as well. So that's been my experience so far. Um, and let's see, three weeks on, I think, to be realistic, it's a three-month thing, you know, but mm -hmm. let's see. Let's see what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And how would you describe the, I guess, general mood or maybe like feeling in the air um, in kind of in Spain or, where, or wherever kind of area of Spain that you're in right now, would you describe it as maybe, is it more like somber? Is there like an air of fear amongst the population? How would you describe it? Well, the great thing about Spain and the Spanish mentality in a lot of situations that are challenging, they have a great sense of humor. So there's an enormous amount of things you can imagine being sent on WhatsApp, uh, videos and, and uh, images. And mm -hmm. so that is something that is, kind of built into the culture in a way, which I really appreciate a lot. Um, there's also this thing that's happened here, which you probably heard about. It's happening a lot of places that we do it at 8 p.m. There's always this uh, cheering that happens. People are hitting, you know, pots together and uh, cheering and now they're playing music and it sounds like a party in a way, you know, like this moment of celebration and appreciation. And the truth is this is something nice because at least... At one point in the, in the day, you have this moment where people are together. You can hear the people that are close, that there's an energy. There's a, you know, because you said about the energy, the feeling. You can feel in that moment there's a shift that happens. And you feel like everything is going to be okay. You know, that, that 
that everyone is in this together. And we're three weeks on. You know, we were told, what, yesterday was official first day that we have 15 more days. So, okay. what I've observed with that is that people, when you're told that, okay, now we're going to extend it, I think people um, almost wake up a little bit and they're like, okay, right, we're in this again. So you recommit that you maybe suddenly you start to think, okay, I'm going to start to do some classes online to improve my English. Or I'm going to do some coaching to lose weight. Or So I suddenly get people contacting me, asking me about doing these things. So, cause I've been doing some promotion online with this. Cause I thought, what am I going to do to keep myself busy, to create some value, to create some uh, income during this quiet time? Because the thing is, is that it's not only about the health, there's also the mental health, there's the financial, there's the isolation, and also there's the idea of longevity. How are you going to get through this, this long period of time uh, on many levels? So for me, it's also about having a point of focus and a, and a purpose, you know? So the air of the energy here is, it's okay. I mean, but if you watch the news too much, it's heavy right it's heavy everywhere um i watch a lot of the news in nova scotia because i want to watch the official report so i can relay the information to my parents in case they missed it because it also gives me peace of mind to know that they're doing things well in the community so it makes me think like okay because that was one of my main concerns that i want my family to be safe it wasn't about like am i going to catch the virus i thought well Okay, I'm being more responsible so my mother doesn't worry. That's my reason for doing it first. And I'm worrying more about her. So what's happened is that I become more the parent sometimes, <laughs> which is uh, which is funny. But she has a super positive attitude always with these situations. So she's often the one who's saying, hey, relax, no worries, you know, and just we'll get through this. Whatever we need, we do it together. And so she's always inspiration um, for me and, and being so infinitely positive. And so I'm very lucky that this, this is the one big thing that I would say that happens. And, and I'm sure you've experienced this before, but I'm spending a lot of time talking with people, sending messages one-to-one -one on Skype with people I haven't been in contact for a long time. Yep. This is special. Absolutely. This says to me that this is a huge opportunity to... People are having more time, they're valuing more personal connections, and they're more open. And people are sharing more. People that I, you know, even known for a long time, they're sharing more. They seem to be more connected with her, of course, mortality, but also there's an element of vulnerability that people are showing, which is so refreshing. Yeah, absolutely. Um just yesterday, I had someone reach out to me who I had talked to in a very long time. So, can definitely, definitely appreciate that. Uh, so, how how have you? So, do you every night at like eight p.m. Do you like play play music, or do you like how how do you contribute to that? Well, very often I go out and bang a bongo drum. <laughs> um, awesome. We go through stages where we play some. Uh, some music they they often play um i will survive but a spanish version mm -hmm. um which is which is quite funny and uh one day i went out and played uh, mc hammer you can't touch this you know <laughs> which is a good one as well mm -hmm. so but you know, to be honest um 
what you'll find, and I felt this with myself, some days you don't have it. You just don't have it in you. And I've stayed quiet. Mm-hmm. And the neighbors uh, will message, and we message, no, today I just felt like being quiet. And, and other days I see them and they say, yeah, me too. I haven't been out because I, I just don't feel like that moment is the moment. And you can quietly, you know, be grateful for all the people who are out there making our uh, life easier and being on the front line, so to speak, and uh, maintaining the infrastructure and, uh, you know, the things that have to happen for life to continue. And you can you can thank people in your own way. So sometimes, you you know, there are times where I've just, I've stayed in. I haven't participated in the same way, in an external sort of way. Um, so I guess it depends. Right. It's very personal. I imagine if I was with other people, maybe it would be different. So everyone has to find their own way to get through this, you know, and, and that's one thing I would say is that, uh, you know, they say it as a cliche, like, oh, check on people that you know that are isolated alone. But this is a good thing because <laughs> we have our moments and we are in our mind and it's, uh, it's, it's really important to feel connected during this time and uh, i'm so grateful you know my parents and i always talk about this the technology we have is incredible that imagine we can talk and message and be on video i mean imagine 50 years ago this situation yeah well the lack of communication the lack of information to predict and to prepare i think in that sense we're in a very different situation they would have been pre pre internet <laughs> yeah pre tv right. imagine wow like mm-hmm. 100 years ago it's just spanish influenza all over again it's um yeah so we're very fortunate in this way mm-hmm. so is there so do you have a, like a tentative end date to um to i guess your your lockdown uh to, to use that word again or is it like a, <laughs> or is there like a, for the foreseeable future, is there no real like end date as of now? Well, I think they push it two weeks at a time for various reasons. I think it okay. allows people to adjust to it. Okay, and probably you'll sense. see the same in America. I'm not sure. Let's see. But I, I think that this, if you said to someone, for example, let's let's make a prediction. I really, I mean, what, the goal here, this is Spain, so I'll be super clear. The goal is have a summer. So we need to have freedom back by August, the latest. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, imagine a lot of people in their homes are thinking, okay, let's do our part because we need July, if we're lucky, August, if we're lucky as well, we have some freedom where we can go out, even to be in the streets, in the land, in the cafes, that would be incredible, even if it's between wave one and wave two of this virus, which they talk about. Um, that would be super important. So I think that that would be realistic to think about that day, but they never say that because they need to, obviously this is a new thing and they're taking it day by day, week by week. But we're always given this kind of like, let's push it now two more weeks. So... I think it's a good way to do it because if you're, like I said, if you're told now, imagine you're told suddenly you have to stay in self-isolation for three months. 
that's tough. Right, right. Two weeks, two weeks, times six, and maybe another week after, you can do it bit by bit. Mm -hmm. That's what I think the psychology is there for, is to prepare people, to train them, to get them accustomed to it, and to extend and to reinvest in this commitment to do the right thing, which is what we're told. We're, we're contributing by doing nothing, by enjoying Netflix and being home and doing whatever we want to do, eating whatever we want, just stay out of the way and don't be part of the problem and let the people do what they need to do um, is, is what we do now. And uh, in this way, we, we were very lucky because I, I, I can't help but think about some of the countries that are going to deal with this in a much bigger way because of poverty. It's another level that uh, we, we, are, we should be really grateful for the situation we're in. Yeah, absolutely. So what are you what are your days typically look like now? How do you kind of kind of <laughs> keep yourself occupied? <laughs> well, as much as I've tried to set a standard sleeping time, I think I don't know, these days it's difficult to set that, but I try to be flexible with it. But having some routine waking up in a relatively time around 9 was ideal for me. I always hit a cold shower, it's part of my routine. This is helps a lot and I often do it multiple times a day because it's a it has a lot of chemical effects in the body and feel good effects and also makes you feel very very alert and very powerful. Mm -hmm. And I follow that by having coffee and hydrating with a lot of water and then I go uh, generally into a, a meditation and I practice generally uh, mantra which is just basically I'm exploring vibrations which um, that's essentially what you're doing through sound and vibration and sensation of relaxation and shifts your state of mind and and allows you to fix on the sound, the vibration versus your thoughts. So it allows you to kind of have that that uh, that rest of your brain. And it depends after that. Often I either write uh, initially, which I like to do as a daily practice, just various things, various themes I write about. Um, and then I do some kind of movement practice related to the martial arts. So I see that practice I do and depending on the weather and if I can be on the terrace, because I'm really lucky I have a terrace, which is fantastic. So in this way, I prefer to keep these patterns in the first half of the day. In the second half, I flow because, you know, one of the advice I heard recently was uh, from, a, from a journalist, and he said that he had been in quarantine or self-isolation in three different countries. And he said one of his advice was, don't keep a structure, don't keep a routine. And it was curious, I, I thought at first, like that's odd to say, but I realized there's some truth in that. I think there's certain things that you should do that, that, uh, that make you feel good, that relieve stress, that put you in a better state. Um, and these are important to do every day. But I think there's also like allow yourself to feel what you feel and be in the state you're in and don't force too much. On yourself don't be too disciplined or too too hard to achieve too much and once I found that balance and this was about a week ago after coming out of a hard harder week I realized that's the balance for me is finding routine in the morning some discipline and then after flowing let it flow 
see how I feel. And I also eat like that. I eat one or two meals a day. I don't follow a strict structure and I practice fasting. Even over the three weeks, I did a five, five day fast uh, just with water and coffee. And that's also one of my practices that helps on many levels, but definitely gives you a stabilization of emotions, increased clarity and the feeling of control. Three things that are invaluable in this moment that we're in to feel any level of control, any level of stability and calmness. Uh, it's in uh, clarity of your thoughts and your perceptions of what's really happening. It's uh, an amazing tool, amazing tool that it's one of my top three tools that I use in the last few years. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And I think that that kind of balance of routine and then going into, um, I guess more of a flow later can be, might be beneficial outside of the current situation too, I would think. Right. Yes. And that's the interesting thing. I was, it's funny you say that I was writing the other day and I thought all of these practices that I developed at another time, much earlier for emotional reasons, for my own both healing and also progressively towards enhancing my life and my experience and my 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 capacities and my health now are necessary and i realize that the routines that i'm changing and my modification and my let's say my more flexible way uh and less disciplined way or finding that balance uh, is exactly that i thought this is ideal for life if you don't have something fixed in your day that's not great, but you want some fixed and some flexibility. And this is back to creativity. Creativity, there's a great quote that says, uh, you know, take time to waste time, you know? And a lot of times creativity is birthed out of, mm, boredom is the word that you normally say, but it's when you're idle, it's when you're drifting, it's when there's a silence and a calmness and you're not doing anything that something comes out something gets planted into your brain and that's a little subtle thing that happens and then you want to write that down because that could be a thing to explore and that's also part of the structure discipline and flow and flexibility in a day so you're right it can be applied to everyday life this is the this is the value of this time we're being pressure tested what is your limit what are your values what are your tools what are your limitations this is this is a moment to 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 find the answers to this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh so I want to bring it back to kind of I guess the the name of the podcast which is Driving Force. Um what what do you think has been your driving force and kind of what's kept you driven for all these years kind of as an as an or as an artist? That's a really light question, Chase. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I guess it's childlike curiosity and a desire to feel more and to connect more both with my myself and with other people and progressively it's become more about how I can contribute more how I can fully 
allow myself to be the best version of me and to really give that into the world and to create something larger than myself. And maybe some of these things are um, cliche now that I say it, but I say it, you know, because I, I feel it. I feel that there's a point mm-hmm. where um, there is something more. And in these moments, especially challenge us to, to, to realize what is and what isn't or what is important and what, or what was important and now is not important. And what we didn't value suddenly becomes much more valuable. So I think in the sense that that's what I'm also tuning into. And like I said, the means of making a living is one thing, but the means of making a a difference or uh, creating a deeper fulfillment is another thing. And if you can find the union of the two, which is, is absolutely what I intend to do, then that's the driving force for me is, mm-hmm. is, is finding that through connection, through exploration and using arts as vehicles and expression as a vehicle for, for, for knowing myself more, finding that balance between knowing this is me, this is what I know, this is what I believe, but remain open. You know, that's, that's the challenge we face in many moments to remain open. There's a great quote from, um, very famous uh, speaker and author, Wayne Dyer, who's, who passed away many years ago. But he had a, a great quote I really love. And uh, he says, have a mind that is open to everything and attached to nothing. Mm-hmm. Think about that. Open to everything, yet attached to nothing. So this is the state that I tried to be in. And what it means is that, for me, is that if you can be in that state more often, you're allowing, you're in a state of allowing. Where do you learn that? You learn it through meditation, to allow. Allow the moment to exist. Allow your mind to be busy. Observe it. Allow yourself to be present. And just be calm. And through that, things happen. You find clarity. You allow people to be as they are. You create a moment, but you allow what's going to happen in that moment to happen. Maybe it's not really about us. It's about allowing things to flow. There's a, there's a book I read recently and uh, it was talking a lot about this. It was, it was called the um, surrender experiment. The idea is about surrender, allowing Mm -hmm. the expression is to get out of your own way. We overthink, we stop, we block, we, we criticize everything. Once we stop that critique about situations, about people, about ourselves, and we allow the situation to happen, this is where, in theory, that life happens through us versus us always having to steer in every moment. So I think it's a nice goal to have. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's great. And, um, I also think it's a good place to, to end, but, um, I guess before we do, um, maybe one last question, I guess for people listening who maybe think that they aren't creative or can't be creative, how would you encourage them or advise them to maybe find their creative spark? Follow what you're curious about. 
That's probably the best advice I could give. What are you curious about? Follow that. No need to overthink it. Just see where it goes. And then there'll be another step. You know, it's always steps. You don't know where you're going to go. Take a step in a direction that you're curious about. And try to get the confidence to, to let out what's inside of you. And try to surround yourself by people who allow that to happen, that encourage that process in you to happen. And if you can do that, then things are going to come out and and who knows what you can create and the life that you can you can build for yourself. Yeah, that's uh that's great. Um Steven, thanks again for for coming on the show. I, I really I really appreciate it. This has been great. Oh, it's been a pleasure for me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chase. I really appreciate the opportunity and the uh, very insightful questions and uh, I really like what you're doing with your interviews and uh, please keep going. This is uh, really important for people to have this, uh, these opportunities to see what other people are doing and to get uh, some valuable insights. And, and, and for me, these influences that I've experienced help me a lot. So I'm just hopefully sharing a little bit of what I've experienced and what I've been fortunate enough to learn from others. And uh, I've just said it maybe in a different way. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. I, I really, I really appreciate it. Uh, where can people go if they want to maybe follow you on social media or if you have a website just kind of get updates on kind of what's going on uh, with you and your photography and acting and all of that? Sure. Um, my website is stevenrasmussen.com and also I'm working on artofsilat.com. So currently uh, stevenrasmussen.com is uh, my photography and my contact details are there. Uh, but that's going to evolve, you know, as you can tell from this conversation and, and this theme of expansion, mm. that that website needs to represent a, a much broader expression of me and also the unification as well as the expansion of what I do and, and where I want to go with things. And Art of CLAT will represent initially a blog, which will start in the next, uh, next two weeks um, with videos about my solo training. And uh, I'll be looking to put some uh, some more content online and, and see what people are interested in. And if people like it, then I create more. And let's see what opportunities and what happens from there. Awesome. And all of you can um, visit my website at chaserosa.com and also follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes and on my endurance training journey. Uh, thanks, everyone who's listening. And see you next time.